Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. With me this week, I have J.D. Oliva. J.D. is a writer, a filmmaker, and a wrestling coach. He's someone that I've been really wanting to uh, talk to because he's probably one of the very few people in the world that uh, I kind of share these two kind of separate worlds with, a wrestling coach and a creative writer. So it was really nice to kind of take a deep dive with him into his creative process, uh, going from comics to prose, and then uh, we definitely hit the wrestling talk there for a little bit, and it was really fun to kind of stretch those muscles and talk to someone who uh you know I don't really get to talk to in that capacity in the comic book world so it was really a lot of fun um before we get to the conversation make sure that you guys subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review it's something that uh, will really help us out and uh before you go if you want a issue one of my hit indie horror series man of sin sent directly to your email all you have to do is go to aguildy.com forward slash free comic and sign up for our exclusive fan list so you get notified not only when this podcast uh, becomes available, but all the other podcasts that will become available, as well as uh, behind-the-scenes looks and free comics sent directly to your email. That's aguildy.com forward slash free comic. So without further ado, please enjoy the podcast. Here we go, man. So, JD, man, thanks uh, again for, for doing this with me and hopping on. And, uh, you know, we said this off-air, um, you're really probably the only person uh, that I could think of. I think the pool is very small. That's, you know, a wrestling coach and a, a creative writer, man. And it's, uh, it's really awesome to kind of talk to someone who's uh, kind of knows exactly how I feel all the time. It, and I, I feel you. It's like you, me and uh, Chris McGrath from Downers North is another writer. He's uh he's got a book out that he's looking for a, for a, um, for an agent right now for. So it's uh there's not a lot. I did, not, I did not know McGrath was a uh, creative writer. Oh, yeah. He's real creative. You should talk to him sometime. He likes talking about this stuff, too. Yeah, I had no idea, man. That's uh, that's awesome. So uh, I guess my first question is how uh, something that I struggled with, and I don't know if you ever struggled with it, but what, did you when you transitioned from your competitive career and went into kind of started creating full time, Mm-hmm. was there like a mental shift that you had to make? Because I know for me, especially <coughs> in, in wrestling, um, it's very much like, you know, me, 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 all about me and very competitive drive. And then when you get into the creative field, it's more of like, all right, we're all in this together. And it was like a, a really different mindset I had to put myself in. I don't know if you experienced something like that or if, or if it was different for you. It was different for me. So like, um, when I left, when I got, uh, I finished college wrestling way back in 2003. And um, I was ready to, because for me, I came in, I, for me, it was all about film at first. I really wanted to be in film. Right. And so the day I graduated from college, I literally, I bought a computer. I bought my first Apple computer. Was, uh, they were handing out like, uh, um, uh, like mortgages, basically. They just give you wanted a computer here, have a computer, finance it. It's no problem. 30% financing. Anyone can have one. So like, there's like stuff that's not legal anymore. So literally the day I graduated from college, I uh, drove back home and just jumped right in. And I never, um, I never felt like I needed to turn on the competitiveness because I always, not as much as I used to, but when I was younger, I really felt like I was fighting for a spot. You know, and back then it was different because you really the having been kind of like on the not want to say the forefront, but having been like having a front row seat to uh, the world kind of changing and, you know, moving from analog to digital and moving from a, a world where gatekeepers were real important to the, to a spot now where they're not. 
like you had to be a little more competitive and it's, it's a lot better now than it used to be. Like I, I feel better about it. Yeah. I, uh, I know for me, it, it took me a long time. Um, Cause I, I know in like my wrestling, like um, career, it was very much like you're kind of, it's all, you're, you're kind of doing it on your own a little bit. And now, now there's communities and there's people you could talk to and everyone wants to help you out. And it was something that I, I wasn't ready. Like it was just something I wasn't used to. And, it's, uh, and it's, it was, it's really nice. It's really nice uh, and refreshing. You know? it is. It's different. It's still something I struggle with. Like I'm, I'm in a bunch of like groups, but I'm probably the least like active person in all of them. Like I'm just, I'm still very much of that uh, wrestling mindset of, you know, you just get in grind, do it on your own. And I, you know, it's, it's probably held me back in a lot of ways. My sister-in-law always talks about how important mentors are and how you need to have a mentor in every aspect of your life. And I've never had a mentor figure in just about anything. And I think it's actually, um, it's actually regressed me in a lot of ways. And I wish that, especially when I was younger, like I had gone out and, and tried to, you know, ingratiate myself into more groups and not been quite frankly, such a meathead about it. Yeah, I I understand that completely. It's uh, you know, it's one of those things where I I think it you know, it probably helps you in a lot of ways too. I know it does for me that I'm very much like I could go and and kind of get what needs to be done. Yeah, I could, I could figure it out, right? Like I'm not, you know, um, I'm okay with it. But at the same time, I completely get what you're saying. Like never having a mentor, always, you know, I'm in a lot of groups too. I'm more of a lurker then like yeah a, same participant like i'll, I'll kind of like see what's going on um and i'm more kind of like all right i'll do it myself and see what happens but it definitely you know the one thing i know in the comics community specifically um it, it's just been such a breath of fresh air where it's it's not everyone competing it's not like i don't want to make paint the 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 wrestling community especially the illinois wrestling community like everyone's at each other's throat but it's oh, a lot paint it paint it it is that's <laughs> the truth that's 100 accurate but but it but it's it's a lot different than the comics community. Like I could go to, like, if I go to, for instance, right. Like a, a, a tournament, right. You'll have like your pocket over there and yeah. I'll have my pocket over here and we're doing our thing. And it's not like I hate you or anything. It's just, I got to deal with my guys. You got to deal with your guys. And that's just how it is. And whereas like, if we go to a convention, we're all in this together. Like yeah, it's, it's a totally different feel. It is. It's very different. Um, that is something it's like, I've always felt kind of stuck halfway between both is, um, you know, I, if for a wrestling person, I, I am pretty friendly. Like I've got a pretty good reputation as like a guy you can go out there and talk to, you know, I have done clinic. I've been at, I've been coaching now. This, this will be my 18th year. If we ever start, um, this will be my 18th year coaching. And like, um, I, I have a good reputation as a guy who'll go out there and talk and I'll do clinics for other schools. And I've been, I've been with four different high schools in my coaching career. I'm at DeKalb right now. I'm pretty happy. Uh, so, I mean, like, I, I tend to be a little bit more open. I tend to have that reputation as being, oh, J.D., he's a nice guy. You know, he's very easy to talk to. I'm proud of that. In comics, like, if I go to if I go to a show, I find that I am um, at my most guarded, and I'm at, I have the most difficulty. I'm far more comfortable in a tournament scenario than I am in a comic show, to the point where I don't even enjoy going to them anymore, to so be honest with you. I have a question about that. Yeah. Is it, and I completely understand and, and get where that's coming from. Is it because having to, you're like straddling between two worlds and you don't really um, 
you don't really feel like the like the you're fully ingratiated in the one where you feel like all right i i, I earn my stripes in the other because that's how i that's how i feel like um sometimes like i wasn't i've I, i'm in the comic book world but i'm not like i'm not one of those guys who could like recite who is on x-men and no one cares about that no one cares you know, about that kind of stuff. you know what i'm saying like like yeah. i'm not i'm not like um it's just a weird thing and i feel the same way sometimes at comic conventions where it's like um i don't sometimes know how to engage or interact because sometimes i feel like i'm an imposter in this world yeah and that's exactly what it is it's an, it's an imposter syndrome like and i think that um that i'm just i tend to be like that a lot in general i tend to be a little a little guarded when i when i feel like i want something i tend to feel like i'm guarded if i'm just out there having fun i don't i don't feel the way at all in wrestling i think it's just i think i just don't care and i never really have like I am, you know, I, I I can go at someone, I can yell at them, I can fight with them, I can have a high five and have a beer with them. Like it's just, I'm I'm more comfortable in that regard because I I just at the end of the day I don't really care, you know. Like I don't I don't I never felt like like I've always felt like too jockey for the nerds, too nerdy for the jocks. So I've just kind of embraced that. When I was in comics, I was different because I. We, I came up through Andy Schmidt's comics experience courses there. If you're, if you want to write comics, there's no better teacher, especially online than, than Andy Schmidt and comics experience. Like everything that I've learned about writing, like I learned from Andy, like that's, he's the best teacher. He really is. So when I go to shows, like, I feel like I'm there for business. And that's like the way, like, like we were, we were kind of reared in the program. Like you go there for business, but so is everybody else. Right. And like, that's when the competitive aspect really kicks in. And I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy networking because I feel like I don't like asking for things. Like I guess that wrestler mentality. It's like, you know, you go out there, you grind, you know, you just get it done on your own. You don't need anybody's help. I'll go to the gym by myself, train by myself. You know what I'm saying? And it's in comics, especially that is an, that is an attitude that will severely hamper a career and it's hampered mine big time hugely hampered my career big time you know between the imposter syndrome and the coming off like either aloof or you just you just don't go get it like it can it can absolutely murder you but at the same time it's like you know i feel like i feel when i go and talk to editors like the only reason anyone talks to an editor at a show is because they want something right and like that's and i'm not very i'm not very good at that like i'm not very good at creating relationships based on a false sense of uh you know, like what the expectations are. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like, I don't sound like being phony, but I just, I'm not very good at it, first of all. And I don't think that, uh, I, I don't think I'm at my best when I do it. And I look back, I think, um, so like I put my first book out in 2013, 2014. Uh, it took, we had a Kickstarter in 2011. It took two and a half years for the book to get done. And when it, you know, we had a publisher, publisher run a business before the book came out. So I just, I said, screw it. And I, I kind of, gave up on trying to go anywhere big with it. And I just put it on a comiXology. And this is like early days of, of uh, comiXology submit. And it was, I didn't even realize at the time, but it was kind of a hit. Like it had thousands and thousands of buys and I didn't, I didn't do much. I just kind of got lucky. Like where uh bleeding cool made it like their pick of the week and the right people got their hands on it. And it was just, but nothing really came from it. Right. Cause like when I put that book out, the, the, the idea of the book wasn't to make money. The idea of the book was to open up a door to something else. And so, I mean, like 
I, I would, so I had this, like, this success and I would like email these editors like, Hey, I'm JD Oliva. I got this book, blah, 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 da, da, da. And the vast majority of them, I never heard anything back from. It just, you know, it's like, you know, it's that, that's pissing in the wind phrase, you know, it just, it just, you know, echoes into the ether. And so that really bummed me out. What I, what I should have been paying attention with was the business success that I was having and not realizing because my, my priorities were messed up. Like I was looking for like that affirmation from the comics community. Like I wanted to be that, like the success more so than realizing I had something and like I kind of let it slip through my fingers. So in 2014, I went to New York comic-con with the specific goal. All right, I'm going to meet people. I'm going to do this. I got, cause I had a pitch. I had this horror book pitch with my for, with a buddy of mine who was a great artist. I had this ready to go. And uh, I talked to Andy out there and he kind of, you know, coached me through how I'd have to talk to people. And he did a, a dry run for me. I'm like, all right, cool. So I did. I met some people. It was going pretty decently, I thought. You know, everything seemed to be on the up and up. And then uh, uh, I got an offer to have a book published. And then my artist died. He's 30 years old. I had a staph infection that he didn't take care of. And he had a heart attack. Is it wow. horrible story? And this was all, this is in three weeks. Like this is from, from the time I, I got home to the time he passed away. It was three or from the time I left for the show said it was three weeks. And I went through like a huge, like depression spiral because it was also like, I like to get early midlife crisis. And, you know, um, my wife had a miscarriage and it was just like a lot of, it was a lot of shit at once that just kind of slapped us in the face. And it really kind of zapped, it kind of zapped me of like being creative. Like I just was, I was super unhappy with where I was coaching. I was super unhappy with my life in general. I was in my mid thirties and felt like, you know, man, I'm a failure. And I had no reason to think that, but like I had a couple little bits of adversity and I just kind of took it on the chin and decided, oh, you know, maybe I'll just be a teacher. You know, that there's nothing wrong with being a teacher, but just for me, I'm not a teacher. So I'm like, maybe I'll just try that. I'll go be a head coach and, I'll try to write this story as a novel on my, on the side. So for a year I was at Harvard and that I, you know, I, I did it for a year. I joke with my wife. I, I lived another man's life for a year and it didn't fit me. Right. And then in 2016, we, we released delusion, my book, and it got picked up with a small press publisher. And this time I went all in, I, I got tons of reviews. They were all four stars. It all did great. You know, it didn't sell well because everybody bought it because it sold thousands of copies the first time. There's literally nothing different about it. So the sales weren't so hot and it didn't quite work. But then I got, um, I got Vertigo's editor following me on Twitter, just out of nowhere, randomly. I figured he's trying to boost his, his followers. So I emailed him back. And, or uh, I, I follow him back and we bullshit. And I'm like, oh shit, this, he's like, hey, I really like Deluge. That's a really good book. And I'm like, oh man, here it is. There's my opportunity. Let's suck it up. Let's do this. So um, I did. I talked to him. He's like, yeah, pitch us stuff. So I literally, I took four different ideas that I had. I took seven different ideas. And I, I had my circle of friends, right? My creative circle of friends. And I whittled it down to four. And then I said, here are the four best. Here's four ideas. Just quick log lines. Da-da-da-da. He goes, I like this one. Let's develop it. So I'm like, holy shit. So we start developing this book. It's the book that I was working on with my friend before he died. So I was really proud of that. And then um, Tim Seeley came in and had a similar book and goes, ah, you know, this can't do this now. And I'm like, you know what? I get it. He's like, what else do you got? I'm like, holy shit, this guy could dump me right now. But he's asked me what else do I have? So I pitched him this uh, pro wrestling book in Japan, like Midnight Express meets the wrestler, you know, is the way I pitched it. And they, he's like, that sounds awesome. So this dude worked with me for a full year on developing this pitch. He didn't have to, I'm not, I'm not working for DC. You know, he's not getting paid to work for me. He thought he saw something in me. So 
but my friends have been through this. So I know, all right, the odds of me sticking the landing here are not good. So what do I do from here? So then I decided, you know what, let's look at this from a business perspective, not an art perspective. This is what I want. I want to be a writer. I want to do this full time. How do I make this work? And I had a kid at that point too. So at this point, it's like, wait, now I have to make this work. This can't be, you know, JD farts around and, and likes to do stuff. I have to make a living being a writer. So I decided I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to work on this project here. If it doesn't work, I'm going to have something else. So then, uh, I started, I'm going to go back into Kickstarter and it took three years to fulfill my last Kickstarter. And I was afraid it wouldn't go again. And I met Tyler James. I don't know if you know who Tyler James is. He's yeah. From comics launch. And um, I was then on like the ground floor of his comics launch podcast. And then later the first online class. And he just, I learned. And that's when I realized what a freaking success deluge was. He's like, what are your numbers? Like the part of the course, what are your numbers? What have you sold? So I sold him goes, JD, those are fantastic numbers. And I'm like, they are. And I feel like such an idiot because I did nothing. I had this opportunity that I let slip because my priorities were shifted. And I was looking for affirmation from like people who didn't matter rather than the only people that do matter is the people that are buying your book. So I'm like, all right, let's change this. So I did my Kickstarter. We nailed it. At the same time, I met a guy named, do you you know Russell Nolte? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Russell's, Russell's my dude. We we uh we we run in in very similar circles. Yeah, that like, this is these are these are these are the guys. Russell inspired me because he's like okay, he does nothing with big publishers. He only publishes by himself, and he does comics and novels. And I'm like, you know, what? I have these two novels sitting on my computer that are doing nothing. Why aren't I putting them out? So then I kind of I kind of dug into the self publishing side of writing because. Again, that's where I'm doing some reading talks to people. That's where the money is. So I'm like, all right, let's focus on making some money. So I fell in love with prose writing. I couldn't, I I really like took to it. And then I got, you know, I I was talking to Jamie Rich from DC back and forth and he's helping me out with this pitch. And he goes, everyone here is on board with this pitch. We all love it. It just has to get through the publisher. That's the last step. I'm like, all right, cool. Let's, let's make this happen. So again, I'm like, I'm sitting in Chicago. I can't do nothing. I get an email, publisher doesn't like it. If you ever have something else, let me know. And I'm like, I knew it. I knew it. But I was like, I was, I was bummed, but I had this Kickstarter that I finished. I had these couple novels that were ready to go as I built my backup plan. And I like, I knew this was, this was better. I'm like, I'm okay. Um, and then he was moved to the Batman division. Now he's in the Superman division. And, you know, I just, and I got friends that are still in that grind, but for me, I just said, you know what? I don't like having my success determined on what a gatekeeper thinks. Cause it's literally, it's just like, what does this specific editor, do they like you as a person? And if you're not, if you can't go to every show and you're not hobnobbing in the bar, it's really hard for you to get, it's really hard unless you're insanely talented. And I, I don't think I'm insanely talented, like it's hard for you to get like those kind of, that kind of traction, you know, unless you become like a super hot commodity. And we had sunk thousands and thousands of dollars into deluge and trying to get that thing done. And the wife kind of closed the purse strings to me. She's like, you're going to figure out how to make this happen. So I knew I saw the comics. Okay. I can do this. And then with pros, there's no limit to that. Like it's what I can do on my own. So in that time, since that, since the stuff kind of went down with DC, um, you know, they've shunted vertigo. So it doesn't even matter anymore. That's something that doesn't even exist anymore. And I've written eight novels and this is what I do full time is I write books. And then I'm, I, I got caught on, I've caught on as a, uh, a bit of a journalist. So I do some, uh, 
I do some writing for some websites too, to make money. This is, this is what I do now. That's, that's awesome, man. What that's a, that's a really, really like uh up and down story, man. And it's, oh, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I do. Thank you for sharing that stuff. Oh. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, I recently, I, I know Tyler James really well. I'm in his comics launch he's, stuff. Yeah. He's great and, dude, uh, man. I, I know, I know Russell and I know all those guys. Um, and, uh, Russell's actually on this podcast. I think he was my second guest. Russell's the man. Like he's yeah. uh he's a genius. Like as far as like I've never like I was talking to him recently, he's he's gonna launch his own app for his books. I'm like, God, he's a madman. Like he's so far ahead of the curve to what everybody else is doing, and then people will catch him him in five years. Like he just thinks so differently than everybody because like especially now that I'm in the prose world, people don't think like they think in the comics world. Like I put out my first prose Kickstarter last year. Again, I used all of Tyler's comics launch principles to do this prose book and it was my, my most money-making project it went great we had a super low funding goal because i didn't really need anything like it was more about just getting awareness and it went it went gangbusters but i pissed a lot of people off but why Cause is that because that's not the way it's done because mm. you don't do you don't need money to do this writing so i don't need money i'm selling books like yep. i don't have to go like if you don't go like even it's so funny because like the 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 self publishing world like prides itself on not being like trad publishing where we don't have these gatekeepers we don't have these fundamental rules and then you start thinking outside the box and people like are like no that's not the way you're supposed to do it you're supposed to do it this way this way and this way I'm like well this way works better for me why would I not want to do that and well to be frank most of my readers are comics people like I don't have like most of my readers aren't our typical Amazon readers, like most of the people who read my books also read comics. So why not find them? So I don't know anything about the, the pro self-publishing and weird. That's, and, <laughs> it's, and that's one reason why I, uh, you know, another reason uh, I wanted to talk to you because I, uh, I was having a conversation in one of Tyler's groups and um, I kind of had like a earlier this year, like, uh, like a couple days into, into June, uh, January, excuse me, I had my goals set out and I had my vision of what I wanted to do this year and accomplish mm-hmm. with comics. And then all of a sudden it was like really weird. I had this wave wash over me that was like all of this work for comics and I could just write prose. And that like, and I was like, and I don't like, and it was, it was all this work as far as like dealing with like all of the different people you had to manage, like yes, artists and colorists yeah. and editors and letters and the printer and there's like a lot of a lot of different hats you have to wear and you're not just being a creator and yeah i was talking about you know this and i was trying to figure out if i really wanted to write prose or was it just um i don't know if you're familiar with the war of art by stephen pressfield no no uh, tell me uh it's a it's a great book it's basically it's a it's a book where he he just talks about um, I highly recommend it uh, if you haven't if you haven't read it. And it's it's basically what's stopping artists from getting their creative dreams pretty much done. And then what he he puts a name on it and he calls it resistance. And basically, what it is is what you are doing internally to hinder your own creative success. And I was talking about it. It's like, do I really want to write prose, or is just this resistance mutating into another form? Mm-hmm where it's stopping me from getting what I really want. Like, cause if I go down the pros road, uh, that's a completely different road that I'm unfamiliar with. It is. It's, it's starting fresh. Yeah. And so 
you have done it, right? You've you went from the comics to the prose world. So what are the similarities? What are the differences? Kind of what 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 do I what could I expect if I decided to go down that road? Um there's a bigger it's funny. Uh there's there's pluses and minuses, and I still kind of have one foot in comics and I have one I have more of two feet in prose now. Um, but I get what you're saying. Like I, I think because I was, you know, film went okay and then I was out because I just I I got tired of begging people for tens of thousands of dollars that I would never be able to pay them back. It just ethically didn't feel right to me anymore. Comics was just a, a matter of people. I just, I wasn't mainstream stuff. Just wasn't getting through. And that's a lot of my friends. A lot of my friends are really good writers, but some, a lot of them haven't broken through yet. Like I think Rich Dudek is probably the best horror writer in comics and he's breaking through, but I mean, I don't think that people know who he is. You know, I see a lot of dudes like that. And like I said, he's my favorite writer. Um, so when I jumped into prose, as I jumped in, you know, looking more at the business aspects, I wanted to keep this like super business focused. And what I learned from prose is like, there is a, there is a way you have to do things in, in comics. Like you, you launch this really big Kickstarter, right? In indie comics. And it can make like tens of thousands of dollars. You're doing like one book and that could be like your, your year or half year or whatever. In prose, if your ass is in publishing, six books a year you ain't gonna make any money minimum like you are not expected to make money in independent public in independent prose publishing until you've written 20 books now why is that math like just how because like in order to be an indie in order to, to, to compete because when when you're on am because i'm on amazon right i'm competing with stephen king i can't compete with stephen king right but what i can do is i can bid under him i can sell myself cheaper and in and, and in books, the majority of Amazon readers will go, hey, that cover looks really good. Price is good. I'll buy that. And then you get them to join your and then it's like comics, get them to join your email list, make that, like Tyler says, that thousand true fans. Right? It's way more competitive than comics. Way harder to get people to latch on to you without some like tricks. And the tricks that were working two years ago are starting not to work. So that's me jumping into Kickstarter and pulling out my comics tricks to uh, do it. Because again, the 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 pros, the pros world of Kickstarter is significantly smaller than the comics. Like I made twenty five hundred bucks on my first Kickstarter for a, for a right for a pros book, and that's that's like aces in in um pro, in pros. In comics, it'd be like you know kind of kind of below average. You know, it's just, again, the, you're not asking for as much. There's not as many people to pay. There's not, you know, there's not an artist. So like the, the cost of entry is significantly smaller. So the pool you're competing with is significantly larger, you know, um, comics fans are more willing to accept new. They're more willing to accept uh, something different. In prose writing, you're taught to write to market. And this is where I struggle. Is what they want, they tell you to do to make money is find what works, find a genre that works, mimic it as much as possible because people want to read the same thing. Um, my stuff is uh, kind of like that. Like the series I have right now, I have eight books, uh, six books out in this series. It's a uh, supernatural thriller, or action horror, as I like to call it, harder to categorize. So it's harder. Like my first book was this werewolf book and that did really well. And the follow-up books have been harder because they're harder to categorize. One, it makes the, it's harder to play with the algorithms because Amazon needs you to fit. They have to know how to recommend you. 
because you have, so you have to play to the algorithms. So it's been a little bit trickier, hence me wanting to uh, expand my reach a little bit and not just play in where it's safe. I have to be different because I'm writing different. So that's the thing. It's like the, that's why romance is killer. The romance writers, when they're in the room, I shut up and listen because they, they know they're, they're killers. They're stone cold killers in this field. They work fast. They work hard. They work smart and they make money. You know, the thriller is the next biggest and that's kind of, that's the genre I'm in uh, a little bit more bracketed off. But again, it's like, it's, it's different. You're playing differently. Like I can go on Am- Amazon's really cheap to advertise on, but there's a way Like you got to figure out how to play. You got to figure out how to dance. Like there's, it's tricky. It's not easy. So, I mean, like you can write a hundred books. It's getting people to read those books in comics. There's this community. Like you say, like everyone's looking to pick each other up. Like um, I, I single boost my friends comics all the time because I want to see them succeed. You know, I, I, I contribute to all my friends, Kickstarters because I want to see them succeed. Ain't like that. in in pros, man, mm. like there is a community, but it doesn't, it doesn't support the way comics does. They think they do but they don't. And I tell, I can tell from being on both sides. So what were some, uh, like non, non, uh, moving kind of adjacent to yeah. the business side of this? Because I, I think what you're saying is really intriguing, but what, what did you, what were some things that you had to get used to or some, uh, growing pains craft wise going from writing for comic scripts to writing prose. I'm the suckiest typist in the world. That's the, that's my first problem. <laughs> I, like if you look at my Twitter, I look at it half times like, God, slow down. And I do that in my writing. So my editors, like I bombard my editors with issues sometimes with my syntax and not grammar, just because I, I write so damn fast. And like my brain moves quicker than my fingers. So that has been the hardest issue is I stress out my proofreader and my editor. I released my first two books without an editor biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Minimum viable product. You want to get affordable. Editors are expensive. I learned how to bargain and bargain with people when you don't have money. So that was, that was the trickiest thing. What I really what's really helped me is my background in comics has really helped me as an, as a novelist because I format my books like I'm writing comics, right? Andy Schmidt always said at the bottom of the page, give him a reason to turn. I've taken that approach and Andy, I remember Jamie Schmidt said the same thing to me when he reached out to me. He's like, Oh, you get, you have a page turn on that. You have a, a turn on every page. And I'm like, yeah, cause I've did it on purpose. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's nice to hear that people like see that. So I wanted to bring that over into my books. Is that like at the end of every chapter, you know, there's a change, there's a question, there's a, there's some type of a cliffhanger. Like I'm trying to motivate you to turn the page. And I also, like, I, cause I think like comics, like I break down to this day, like there's like, there's this war in, in, in novels where you're, you're plotters versus your pantsers. Your, your pantsers are people who are just free wheel writing and they write what comes to their mind. And from a person who comes from comics, like that's insanity. Like you can't do that. Like, cause you come from comics, everything's gotta be broken down. You have to tell that artist what, and if they see something different, cool, but you need to get that point across of what you're trying to do every time. So for me, I'm a hardcore plotter. Cause I come from comics and every chit it's like a, a comic. Every chapter is a scene and what are scenes two to three pages. So what am I work? I've worked about my, my average chapter is about a thousand words, about two pages is what I figure two, three, three and a half pages between two and three and a half pages. That's, that's my chapter. Like they're short, you know, so you knock them out. Like um, one, I remember one of my reviewers was like, man, this thing reads so fast and so easy. 
like I read 150 pages and didn't even realize it. I'm like, all right, like I tricked you like yeah. my little, my little tricks. And that's all from comics, like how to beat, how to pay something out. Like that was been, that was like not a hard adjustment. That was just like a, an adjustment that I made based on what I was taught and how to apply it. And I was really proud of that. The hardest thing for me is that like, um, when I'm wrong, I can lean on an artist in comics. They can see something that I don't see, or they can fix my mistakes. Or if I have some typos, it doesn't matter. When you're in prose, like if you want to be on an island, your ass is on that island. You know, so that's the plus. You know, one half it's all me, and the other half it's all me. So it's the it's that that's both a uh, it's a two edged sword. It cuts both ways. That's the hardest thing for me. Yeah, I could. I can definitely see that. It's it's interesting that you said that, you know, prose is, is separated with the the uh the plotters and the uh what did you call it? The panders? They're called pantsers. Pantsers. Like, you're, right? you're flying by the seat of your pants. Yeah, you know, and it it's and it's interesting, right? Have you read uh Stephen King's on writing? He is a pantser. He is yeah. one of the most famous pantsers. And yeah. I think I think you tell in a lot of his books is sometimes they putter out at the end. Because oftentimes, like we I remember Ed Brubaker said this about comics, is like the character-based writers tend to have the best middle act and the plot-driven writers tend to have the best finishes. Right? Because like when you're when you're char- like in, in, in character motivated storytelling, you want to get to that big moment where everything hits the fan. Whereas in plot based, like you're you're thinking you your plot driven stuff, like you're thinking of like the arc, the char- the uh, the story arc more than the character arcs. I see the same thing on in the prose world is the people that are pantsers have these like great moments, but sometimes sometimes the ends don't click. And even like Stephen King's my favorite writer, but sometimes the ends don't don't quite work. You know, it's because he doesn't he just writes and doesn't know and oftentimes doesn't know where his famous quote is. Uh, I want to I got I got to write because I got to see how the story ends. I can't I can't imagine that you know, not knowing where the story goes. And again, I'll veer off the course of my outlines. You know, I look at it as like a roadmap. Like, you know, I know how to get, like, I know how to get to Schaumburg. Maybe I'll take a different way to get there, but at least I know where I'm going at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm a hundred percent the same way. Um, I'm a little bit of both. I'm definitely, I start with like a pretty, I wouldn't say strict outline, but like my, my, my writing like process, I've just realized it's really long and convoluted. But everyone's is different, man. Everyone's yeah, is different. And, but it, but I've just accepted it that it's mine, mm-hmm. right? So I I can't start writing, and I don't know if you do this, but I don't start writing until I've created the mental headspace. And what I mean by that is, unless I can hit play in the movie in my head, like I don't start writing. And then once I have that down, then I'm pretty much just I take like a yellow some sort of notepad and uh, like I write it out longhand. And then once I have, write it out longhand, then I go and I write like one through twenty two or however long it's going to go. And then I outline that way. And then I get to uh, the actual comic scripting. And from there, if something new or exciting happens, I let it happen. But uh, like, I couldn't imagine just like be like completely willy nilly, like page yeah. one, panel one, and just wherever we go. I, 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 just... I couldn't imagine that, but there's like a lot of fantasy writers with a lot of, there's a lot of people that, that think the, 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 the idea of, of plotting super tight like that is boring. I, I'm not one of them. I respect people that can write like that. I cannot like for me, I figured out my process is I'll start with the high concept. Like um, this book I just finished, like I wanted like, it's part of my series. Um, I want to do a vampires in Southern California thing. So that's where the story came up. So, so then I just sit there and go, okay, now who are these people? That's what I, before I even think about plot, like I'll have like loose ideas of what stuff will happen and like stuff I want to tackle. But before I even really commit to that, I got to figure out who everybody is. 
So like, and I write in Scrivener, which is great for that. Scrivener has like a, a nice little side that a nice little um, option where you can actually program your characters, what their role in the story is, you know, what they're, what they like, what their mannerisms are like, just so you can help build real people and even lets you cast them. So you could throw a picture of whoever, so you can grab a picture off the internet, boom, put it in there. So at least you have in your, in your head helps, helps make them real. And I use it. I, I laughed at it at first and then I started doing it and it's absolutely helped me like a ton. So yeah, I'll do that. And then I'll, I'll look at the three X structure. I'm like, all right, what are my beats? What are the major points? What happens? And I'll try to plot my beats and then I'll go back and outline. I, I used to try to outline like, well, number one would be chapter one, number two would be chapter two. And like, I, I come to find that I'll have 30 beats and I'll have like 70 chapters. So I'm like, okay, so I don't, I don't worry about that as much anymore. Like I just need to, what has to happen? Here's what has to happen. Here's how we have to get there. You know, have the, each of the character arcs set. Okay, where do they have to go? And constantly refreshing myself. The most thing that, that writers always forget is the true element of story. It's like, okay, what is my main character? What is his goal? What is standing in his way? Constantly referring back to that because it's so easy to get lost in the shuffle. Like I write about, part of my job is I write about pro wrestling a lot. And I see this a lot all the time is they, they bury themselves in beats and say, no, this is our storytelling. It's like, no, you're not storytelling. You've completely, you've completely lost what the character's goal is. What is he trying to do? Who is standing in his way? What is standing in his way? How are they changed at the end? Like if you can, if you can keep focused on that, it makes for a better storytelling experience. Like it's true. Like, again, it's always, what is the character? Who is he? What are they trying to do? Constantly refer to that. And in every chapter, you have a little bit of that too, because you always want to start like Robert McKee. I don't. This is me, Robert McKee. Every chapter, you start the character in in one spot, and they have to be in a different spot at the end. So if they're in a position of power, they're in a position of weakness by the end of the chapter. If they're in a position of weakness, they're in a position of power. Just stuff like that, you know, like constantly, constantly like altering their their situation, you know, or at least the at least the reader's perspective of their situation, so as to keep the reader, you know, moving. Because like meandering writing is boring. Oh, you know? it, absolutely, and. Uh, just going back to like going back to Stephen King, s- some of some of his stuff I can't get through because it just feels like he's just me like just going nowhere. Like it's just really hard sometimes for me. I know no, some I get people it. love it, and I'm just like, where are we going with this, man? There's some there's some stuff I love more than others, and I think he's a more fo- <laughs> I think he's a more focused writer now that he's older and um, not as chemically altered when he writes. <laughs> Yeah. As he did when he was younger. Like I think I tend to find I like his I know this might be sacrilegious to some people. I think his newer stuff is better than his older stuff. Like his Dark Tower stuff is fantastic. But I think it gets better. I mean, like again, I think the stuff gets better as it goes along. People, some people don't agree with me on that, but I think that the newer King stuff is 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 way more focused than his older stuff. Like even it, it is a classic story, but I mean like the the adaptations always get in trouble because they try to follow what he did and what he did is super hard to follow. You know, like literally it's hard to follow what's going on. Narratively it's all over the place, but it's such a, it taps into such a raw core with people that it works despite its faults, you know? Yeah. I I've never read it. I'm actually uh, going through the stand right now for the first time. I hate that book. Really? And I, I don't like it for that I, reason. I find it, I find it meandering and I think the ending is really stupid. Well, it's my I, least favorite. I'm only like 40 uh, pages in and I'm 40 pages of like 700 or something crazy yeah. like that. So it's a, it's an intense read, man. And uh, there's like a couple parts in it just already where I'm like, none of all of this could have been cut. 
Yeah. Like, like, but I'm just like, all right, let's just see. Everyone talks about like, this is his best book. Um, so I'm going to see what happens. It's his, it's his most ambitious. And I think there, I think that, um, it's hard sometimes to art has to be judged in the space in which it was created. So I mean, it's hard to go back and read pride and prejudice with like 2021 eyes. Cause we don't write like that anymore. And I think even Stephen King wouldn't write that book the way he did today. Like, I think that, uh, I do think that some stuff could be a little bit more focused in it. Like, Again, maybe I'm too hyper focused on things. Maybe that's a flaw in my writing. But again, like for me, it's a it's a more satisfying reading experience. I tried to read. Speaking of King, I'm writing. I'm about to write a ghost story. I'll tell you that's in a minute how we're doing this. Um, so I wanted to read Ghost Story by Peter Straub. It's supposed to be like one of the best ghost stories ever written. I couldn't get through it, man. Hundred pages, and I was bored. Like, again, I thought he was like, it wasn't intriguing to me. I had a hard time. I had a hard time with like the, the, the narrate, the narrative, like I just had a, it, it had a real hard time grabbing me. I'm like, I feel like nothing, I feel like nothing is progressing the plot forward. And some people like that. Some people really like, you know, getting lost in the weeds and lost in the world. And I just like a focused narrative. Again, I think it's because I have that background in comics where real estate is so expensive and so short that everything has to count. Well, I also think that comes from film too. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, yeah. So like, like if you're, if we're talking about like, I'm, I, I have a, a screenwriting uh, background and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so like everything that I do is very, I'm very much really focused on structure. Mm-hmm. Right. And when, when you talked about like the, the hero needing to change and all this stuff, the way uh, you know, the way I always look at, look at it is that, you know, not only do you know, he, he has a goal, right. That he thinks mm-hmm. he wants like the girl or whatever in a, in a romantic story, but really what he really wants is something else. Like the goal oh, yeah. is, the goal is standing in the way. And so like, if you could figure that out and a lot of times, you know, the hardest part in a story. And I, and I don't know if you're like this, it sounds like you are, but like, I don't start writing or like, I might have different ideas, but until my idea could figure out what that is. Right. And what that character, like, you know, I'm a, I'm an English teacher by trade. And so mm-hmm. I, I talk to all my students about this and stories are all about, you know, someone changing, like, the, like yeah. they're, they're teaching us, right. How to live our best life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when they, at the end, if that person doesn't change, right. If that person doesn't, um, you know, they overcome whatever it is. And, and at the end, there's that satisfying thing. That's why we feel satisfied because we, we've figured out, the right way to live. If that's not there, that's when you get endings that like don't feel right. You're like, I don't right. know. Why. The ending just sucked. Mm-hmm. It's because you don't have that. And until I could connect those dots, I just, I, I just kind of, I'm like, all right, this is just an idea. Cool idea. And, and that is the struggle with serialized fiction is because like the characters can't change too much. So oftentimes, oftentimes the changes become more superficial because they have to, you know, or they become, or it takes like like grand change has to come over a long course of stories. Like, so the story isn't like one issue of a book, like, like amazing fantasy 15 is a nice little story, but the real story is spider amazing Spider-Man one to 700. Right. right. That, that in itself is a story and it's multiple writers, but again, ultimately it's the ups and downs of the life of Peter Parker and how he is constantly changed. And it's hard to see that. It's hard to see that change on a, a, a a macro level, right? When you're looking, or I guess maybe we're on a micro, take the back. It's probably harder to see, to see it on a micro level because when you, you take one trade or one book and you look at it, you're like, oh, you know, this doesn't have that. But if you look at it over the course of like a run, 
or over the course of the character's existence, then it's there. You know, and it, it, it's tricky because some like I have this argument too about Raiders of the Lost Ark because there's a lot of talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark as a story because it like defies a lot of conventions. And there's people because they're like the hero doesn't make anything better in that movie, right? Like the hero's actions make things worse constantly. You know, I heard someone gag if Indiana, if Indiana Jones does nothing, they open the Ark of the Covenant in Berlin and all the Nazis are dead. And you're like, what's a good point? <laughs> but I mean, so, and then some, I had this argument, my brother goes like, Indiana Jones isn't changed at the end. I said, no, he is. He says that maybe not everything belongs in a museum. And that's literally the change of Indiana Jones. But the character is so strong that you accept it. And sometimes that can happen. And this is why I think the character can be more, is more important than plot in a lot of ways. Cause if we're taken in by character, that'll get you a long way. Like a character will, will investment in a character will drag you a lot further than investment in plot. And I guess this is, I think the best example of this is game of Thrones is like you come in for, you know, boobs and dragons and blood. Right. And then you're really drawn in by these fascinating characters and how they operate in this big giant world. But we get to the end and you're like, that's it. Nothing, nothing reaches a real satisfying conclusion because again, it's more, that is specifically a show that's really more about character than it is about plot. Yeah. And it it was set up to where really any conclusion, like it it was set up to go on almost forever, right? Yeah. Cause like when people die, there's just other people to take spots and other avenues. And I thought it was really interesting. I actually heard Russell, I, I never thought of Game of Thrones this way, but I heard actually Russell Nolte talking about this on a podcast that, Game of Thrones is actually like a bunch of different subgenres into one genre, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, like you have like a political thriller over here. Mm-hmm. You have like your dark fantasy over here. You have your high fantasy. High fantasy over here. You have your romance story. You have your zombie story. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it, is, it is a pop culture Cuisinart. It truly is. Yeah. And it's it's wrapped up so nice. You think you're getting this like one thing, but really inside, it's like almost like a a burrito, right? Yeah, like a, absolutely. Yeah. And when you get to the end of the burrito, you're kind of bummed out because the burrito's gone, and you're like, "Oh, <laughs> I'm full. I'm too full, actually." And now I don't feel good. Like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of. Yeah, I, I never noticed that, but once he said that, I started thinking about it. Like, Man, that's that's spot on. It is. It's 100, percent and it's really you can see everything that George R. R. Martin really dug in his life is like represented through those books. Yeah, he's a huge superhero fan, so you see that reflected in, like, Jon Snow. Clearly, he's a Lord of the Rings fan. You know, obviously, he got into horror movies. You know, like, you can see it all It all comes out. But at the same time, how, like, when you have a tapestry so grand, how do you finish that? Like, what possible ending could have could have made everyone happy? Well, I, don't think pro- it, I don't think it's possible. It's probably why he hasn't finished his last book, right? I think you're right. Last two. And it's probably why everyone was so disappointed in the um, Game of Thrones, like season eight, because Mm -hmm. I don't know how you felt, but how I felt was I felt like uh, Martin gave them an outline. And instead of them embellishing the outline, they're like, let's just shoot the outline. I agree with you. And it's funny. And I think and I didn't hate it as much as other people do, because I kind of. I kind of thought the uh, the Daenerys heel I, I use these in progressing terms the heel turn for Daenerys worked like I thought it made sense with I'm like this is all here but a lot of people disagree with me so I'm again I'm a man on an island in that I, yeah I, I, yeah I agree with you on that but I think it went too fast right if it was no, oh no slow... absolutely absolutely the the nuance wasn't there like and again you hear about how uh, how those guys pitched the show 
they had no they like they talked oh yeah we just went in through the we just had this idea and they had no idea what they were doing and they had to reshoot the pilot because they fucked it up so bad you know i didn't know that oh yeah they had to read the the original pilot has never been seen because it's unwatchable and yet hbo believed in them so much that they let them shoot another one which is just mind-boggling you know yeah it it doesn't surprise me at all like that's exactly what it was because like a lot of the character stuff a lot of the nuance a lot of like the storytelling isn't there in the last two seasons like you could tell they're really just all right knuckle up we got to get to the end yeah i i really feel like like they yeah i feel like they had the outline and they're like you want to like embellish at all and they're like nah we're good let's just shoot the outline man yeah, because again, you lost this. You have this big tapestry, which you can like whittle things down. And it's easier to whittle things down than to whittle them up. Yeah, you know? my 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 one big, the one thing it, it just really, I, I it was almost unforgivable for me was the last scene where they tell uh, God, what's his name, Tyrion, right? Yeah, right at the end, they're like, we don't want you to talk, and then he has a twenty minute monologue. Yeah. I'm like, wait, what? Like, who who allowed this to go through in the writing process? Like, someone he, someone should have said something. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. No, there's a lot of it's flawed. Like I said, I like the show so much that I'm willing to accept the flaws. It's not like the How I Met Your Mother finale, which is like the worst television finale in TV history. Uh, like, that's that's terrible writing. This was just like you just they're just it's like they just closed their eyes and powered through it's like when you're you drive that last like you're driving and you got to finish the drive so you slap yourself in the face a few times drink some coffee and you just finish that's that's how the last three episodes of that show feel to me like i feel like the nuts and bolts are there but the execution is is definitely off yeah uh going back i guess just a, a little bit to uh yeah, to your, yeah to your writings um so what uh, are you going back to comics? You have your foot in the comics door anytime soon? Are you full full bore into prose? I pitched Russell for his. Uh, he's got a new anthology coming out. This uh, this uh, Lovecraftian thing. Me and uh, a buddy of mine threw in a pitch for that. I don't. I won't know if I'm in it or not for a while. And it's involved. And I did it smartly because I'm trying to think of business first. I, I incorporated my series lead character, my Ethan Jericho character. And an eight, we're doing an eight page story about him and it, it works in with his series. Uh, so right now that's where I'm at. I'm in such like a grind right now. Like with this, like life with life being what it is, I've got a four year old about to be five. He's not in kindergarten yet. So I'm dad the chunk of the day while mom has the normal people job. And then she gets off work. We've all worked from home. And then I start writing, but I'm also doing like these articles because I get paid for them. So right now my head isn't isn't in comics, um, but I did get these for this pitch. We got some test stuff, and it did it did hit me. It did get me going in that way. So we'll see what happens with this. I'm probably never going to be all the way out, but with 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 prose, it's such like a it's very workmanlike, which I think fits me really well. Is like I, I just finished a book on January first, and I'm writing another book while this one's at the off while at the, my editor, and I'm plotting out a nonfiction book I'm going to write later this year because I got to get to my twenty so I can start making money, right? So that's kind of where I'm at as far as comics go. Like I said, I just I don't know, man. Like I I want like I don't care about ever Marvel DC. That was my dream for so long, and I think I finally realized I just wanted it to kind of like affirm my to get like that affirmation that like oh you you know you're a real writer that to get that because you know i don't care about that anymore you know like 
the, the guys I, I've talked to and had friends with that have done it, but haven't been on like, you know, that Bendis level, it's, you know, a lot of times it's just doing what you're told and writing what you're told to write. And I mean, like, I kind of want to, I kind of like doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Like kind of doing what you want to do. I think, um, I think as a writer, when you give up your agency, yeah. like when, when someone's like, all right, write this way. I think there's, some people are great at it and some people have, yes. made, have made a lot of money and then Absolutely. made a living. Mm-hmm. I just know myself personally and my, my attitude. And it sounds like you're very similar that that would just crush you. It's that wrestling thing and, and yeah. wrestling, you know, it's um having played team sports and wrestled, you can speak to the difference of playing a team sport and being a member of a unit. You know, like when you're at, when you're playing football, like I had a job that I had to do and I did my job well, but it wasn't like when I was wrestling, you know, I'm out there doing my thing. I got to, I got to take my set of skills, you know, cause I'm different than the dude next to me. And I got to figure out a way to make this work for me to where I can be successful. Cause I've seen cookie cutter wrestling coaches and it doesn't work because no two people are the same. So I think that when you're a wrestler, you kind of come up that way. You, you know, you figure out what you're good at, and always emphasize your strengths, protect your weaknesses. So I think that when when some of us get put into that little box, we immediately reject it. You know, like I don't want to do that. I want to do what's what's right for me. And there's people tell you you can't do it. Even in, in pros, like you got to write to market. If you want to make real money, you got to write to market. It's like okay, maybe I don't make a million dollars a year. I'm fine. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm paying my mortgage. I get paid to write about. I got paid to write about the Great Muta today. Like. <laughs> Like I, who am I to argue with anything about what I'm doing? I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm, I think I'm good at it. You know, why would I want, unless I, unless my perspective and my value system changes for some reason, I enjoy what I'm doing right now. I yeah. like, I like focusing on my stuff. That's, that's awesome, man. Um, we talked a, a, a little bit about this um, off air and you, you, you mentioned, uh, I hope you don't mind me bringing it up, but no. you know, being a you know being a a wrestler and and a creative writer, sometimes like your wrestling friends just don't understand you. No, right, and a lot of times you feel alone, which I feel all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I don't know how you are, but like I feel like I have, I feel like George Costanza, where I've compartmentalized my life. Like I have like comics Andrew and coach Andrew and husband Andrew and like mm-hmm. all of that. And I don't know, like how is how is been, how's your experience with it? Same, ben? very 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 similar. Um, well, Ram, when I was like wrestling in college, it took me a while to open up. I'm very guarded, like just you know afraid of getting trounced on. Like part of that's just being a nerd growing up. Like even like you know you play sports in high school, you kind of roll with the popular kids, even though you don't feel like one of them. You know, like they're all talking about parties and shit and you know i want to i want to get home and get the next issue of spider-man you know it's important for me to make sure i make i'm at the opening of you know of batman you know like that's that's what i cared about more than you know being cool and like i don't know because i because i played sports i was in like the right circles growing up but i never felt like i belonged so i never had i never had friends that um were as into stuff as like I was. The only time that I felt like people like growing up, that people came to me is when wrestling, like pro wrestling got really popular in the late nineties. And then all of a sudden everybody else was into what I was into. And then all of a sudden, man, JD knows all about this stuff. Like he'll, you know, I'm like, yeah. And I felt on the cusp of something. Like I felt like with something as opposed to like, you know, being an outsider with things. And like, 
I think I've kind of taken that approach with me throughout my entire life. Whereas like, you know, I think we all do. I think we all kind of wear the masks of what we're doing. Like when I'm, when I'm at practice, you know, the kids all know me, like I'm, I'm me. They know I'm what I'm into, but like, I can't be that guy, you know, just like when I'm home, I'm not going to be coach JD. That guy's kind of a dick, you know, <laughs> like, like I can't be that guy all the time, but I mean, like, so you have to, you have to, to exist in life. You have to have different aspects of yourself that like exist in different, in different moments. Now I'm dad and that's an even different person. And mm-hmm. that guy being dad has mellowed me out dramatically. I remember 2012, 2013, I was super high strung and I would super beat myself up and my imposter syndrome would dominate me, not just in writing, but in coaching. Like, why aren't my guys as good as I do this? And I don't know. And I would just let my inferiority complexes just rule me. And like, now that I'm a dad, like everything is just like, makes so much more sense. Like, Like being a father has just made it, has made everything make a ton more sense to me. Like, cause like, that's, what's important. The rest of this is all superfluous. Like it's yeah. all, it's all junk. I, right? uh, you know, becoming a, you know, I have a, I have a one-year-old daughter and we have our, um, our second one on the way. And, um, thank you. Thank you. And, um, the, the one thing where I kind of like buckled down once she was born and kind of really started to really kind of want to do this creative thing. Like I don't have to do this creative thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm a, I, I have a job and I, I love what I do as a career and, but I, I want to do this creative thing. So I really had to like, why am I doing it? Right. My, mm-hmm. my big why. And, and what it is, is I want to be able to look my daughter in the eyes and tell her she could do anything she puts her mind to. And I don't want those to be hollow words. And I want to look at the things that I created and say, look, this is what I did. Right. And so for me, like hearing you say that where it makes it everything so clear, like I completely understand that mm-hmm. and get it because it, it really, it galvanized my why. Like my why before when it was just me, like it's weird, right? Like it's it, my why is, is it money? Is it like a living? Like what, what is it? And obviously those things are there, but for me now it's like, all right, I got to do these things for my children so they could see what's possible in this world. And that's really, you know, uh, when you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's cool you say that. Like I have the little bit of an opposite experience because I've never, like I've only had one like real nine to five job in my life. I was, I worked in TV. I was a TV editor for a couple of years and I was absolutely miserable. So I've had a freelance life since I was 28 years old. Like I've been just, I've cobbled together a living, but I'm not super intrinsic. Like I'm not super financially motivated. Like I'm far more a person that's motivated by like experience and like, that being that person allows you to not take risks. Like you take risks, but you can like hold back sometimes. You're like, ah, it wasn't that important to me anyway. Ah, I'll look over to this is more important than that. Ah, it doesn't matter. You know, having the kid now it's like, all right, what do you want? That's why I decided I was going to try to be a teacher. My, my wife was pregnant. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I need to grow up a little bit. Maybe this isn't for me. And I did it. And I'm like, this is not me. This is not what I'm, what I'm here for. I'm not good at it. I suck at it. Like I'm good at this other thing. I just have to work smarter, not harder. Like I needed to work smarter. Like we have this wrestling. I argue this with, with like wrestling guys all the time. It's like we get, especially American wrestling. Cause now I can get, now I'll get all Brian Medlin on you. Is like, you get this American wrestling mentality where we embrace the grind. Like we all heard that you embrace the grind. You let yourself just get, and eventually the grind grinds you up. Right. So, I mean, like I'm far more interested by these European training models now where, 
you know, you train for a thing and you pull back and you train for a thing and you pull back. And then it's not just a, a constant boom, 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 boom. Cause that, that tires, that makes you tired. And for so long, like I'd be like embracing this grind and like, Oh, I just need to be work harder. You know, it's like, no man, take, pick your shots, be smart. What are you good at? Like what, what, like for me, I had to look inside, like, what do I want to do? What can I do? What is smart for me? Like I've had far more success financially speaking as a prose writer. I enjoy it more. I have to follow this. It turns out I'm a, I'm a, I don't want to say I'm a journalist, but I write these like essays. I'm pretty good at it. I'm getting paid for it. I have to focus on it. So now I have to be regimented. Okay. That's not working hard. That's working smart. Cause working hard would be okay. I have 10 things to write in three days. I won't sleep. And I'll just beat my ass and do it. That's not good. That's not sustainable. Like if you're going to have a career in writing, you need to have something sustainable. Like, and again, I know these people like in pros, they knock out like, I know people, geez, they knock out like 10 to 20,000 words a day. And I'm like, I can't do that. I can't function that way. Like I just, I, one, I won't have fun. Two, I won't be happy. Three, I just, I will literally grind myself. So the, the Scrooge McDuck philosophy is, you know, work smarter, not harder. And again, you are working hard. Dude, I, I, I'm going to, I wrote a thousand words before we talked today, before dinner, I'm going to write probably two, my, my goal is always 3000 words a day. I'm going to write 2000 more before I go to bed. Probably gonna hit the gym too a little bit before. Cause I, I got up late this morning. Like that's just life. Right. I, I was, I was just going to ask you, do you have like a, like a daily goal, like word count? Is it monthly, weekly? Like how do, how do your, how do you kind of structure what I'm, you need to get done? I'm very bad at like scheduling my wife. My wife is super organized. I'm just not a super organized person. Um, <clears throat> I feel I like a to, lot of creatives are not super oh, organized. Big time. But then I meet people that are like, man, in pros world, I meet so many people that are like data masters and they live their life on spreadsheets. I'm like, how can you be this person and creative? But they're out there. They're just harder to find. I think, um, for when I'm writing a book, I try to hit 3000 words a day. You know, um, if I hit 2000 one day, I try to hit four the next. If I don't no big deal. If I have an article that I have to do, I'm a little bit more forgiving on myself. You know, sometimes like I, I had this big monster article for Viking media this week about, um, it's a really cool story about how new Japan pro wrestling brought in these Soviet, uh, amateur wrestlers, these world champion level Soviet amateur wrestlers and taught them pro wrestling. And one of them inspired the character Zangief from street fighter. Like I wrote this 2000 to 2,500 word massive essay on Monday on this guy really turned out really good. I was tired, man. Like I took a lot of research and a lot of effort. And like Tuesday, I just, I just didn't have it. So I get, I was, I had to be smart. I'm like, you know what? I'll take a day. So and I have three articles I have to write a week. So I have to make sure I get those done. And then I try to hit 3000 words a day. If I don't, that's okay. Now, is this, is this in addition to, or supplement to supplement to whatever that word I'm looking for is, it's getting late. Um, like your outlines and things that you're doing. No, like do, you I mean, outline, do you outline first or like, how does that kind of process work I'm, for you? So yeah, that's a great question. Actually, when I'm in the, when I'm writing a book, like I'll, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing that. If I'm, if I have a book finished or if I'm editing a book, I'm just working on the editing, right? I'm just doing the job in front of me. Like if I'm literally like doing a first draft, cause I'm a garbage draft writer. Like the first, the first draft is just pure id. It's just whatever comes out. And then I'll go back and read everything and make sure it makes sense and fix stuff as I go along. Um, cause I, I will get, I will bury myself in, in little fixes if I don't. So if I'm, if the job for the day is I need to write this outline, I'm gonna write the outline tonight. 
if the job for the day is you need to build five characters, I'm gonna build those five characters. So like, it's like whatever, whatever I need to, whatever needs to get done for the day. That's what I try to do. So like when I'm, when I'm writing a book, it's 3000 words a day. If I'm editing a book, it's whatever, you know, it's whatever, whatever I can get done that day. Some chapters need just clean up some chapters. It's like, Oh my God, what am I doing here? You know, it's, so that's, that's all, that's all different. Like it, it shifts depending on what I'm specifically working on at the moment. Does that make sense? No, no, I, I totally get it. Yeah. And when you, when you say build characters, how are you building your characters? Cause I have, I have what I call character DNA that I do with all mm-hmm. of my characters. So I'm wondering if it's very similar to what you do. So what I've always done, this goes back to when I was a little kid and I was writing stories is I would literally write the characters first. I don't know why I did it. I just always did. So I literally as a kid, I like, write a character's name. What is what is who is he? What does he do? And that's that. And what I've done now is, like I said, in Scrivener, they give you um, these character bios. I'll pull one up right now so I can actually tell you what I want to do. Let me open the Scrivener up real quick. And I'll literally just, uh, damn it. I have to, I got the two computers open at the same time. No worries, man. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, one sec. So yeah, I'm going to my characters. Like I'll write, I'll put on my character. It's like in the inscription will be okay. Character's name is role in the story, his occupation, their physical description, their personality habits, their background, internal conflicts, external conflicts, any other notes. And that can be whatever I want it to be. And how, right? how, how much of that stuff, like, do you consciously hold in your head? How much of it is just like there that you could reference? What I do you do it for, with it? I keep it for reference. All I, the way I look at this, this is how I meet a character, right? And it's all first, like, unless I have, like, unless I have something specific in mind, like, I won't, I'll just put a one sentence for everything. And then I'll put a picture in there just so I can see them. And usually, I don't really get to know them until they're on the page. My villain in the book I'm writing now, he's turned out a lot different than I thought he would. Like, he just, and again, I'm one of, I guess I'm one of those crazy races. Well, he talks to me like this. It's like when I'm doing the voices, like, it just is like his speech structure and his mannerisms and his motivations have shifted already from where I thought they would, you know, just, you get to know the people you you're getting, when you're writing, you get to know your characters as you're creating them. Even when you think you have them, you know, the subtext comes through and like, they kind of take over. I am one of those people that's crazy like that. And, and, you know, let's think, thinks their characters actually doing things like it just, and all it is is an extension of your own it and your own personality, but it tends to work out that way. So I just need to like briefly shake their hand and then, you know, put them in the story and then let them see what they do. Yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting, right? Like you're saying this, and if you said that to like a room full of like any other wrestling coaches, they look at me like I'm an idiot, like they normally uh, do. Yeah. But everything that you said, I'm like, dude, I totally get it. Like, yeah, it, and it's it, and it's uh it's interesting. I was talking, I had a, a another podcast. I was talking uh to my buddy Frank about this, and he goes, "Yeah, I usually put two characters in a room and let them talk." And I'm like, I totally yeah. get that. Yeah, but it's like they don't exist; they're in your head. Like, it's right. make believe. You and say it, that to a normal person, they look at you like you need, like my, my wife will hear me talk about that. And she's so like super analytical, you know, and she's just like kind of rolls her eyes at me. But I mean, yeah, like if you're weirdo creative, like you, you totally get it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you, like you say like, oh, they're, uh, you know, I have them in this way and I, I don't really know my characters and I, I kind of call them uh, paper characters at first. Yeah, right. I get what like, you're saying. Yeah. Like they're, I just put them out there. They are what they are and they'll develop. Like I, I might have, my first draft or even my specifically my first draft of something I'll have them there. And there's really just shells at that point. And as the story goes, it's almost like what's, what's really fun about writing is when something will happen and you'll discover something about them 
that came out of nowhere. Either they, they're, they're doing something or they'll say something or their motivation will change into a way that's oh. organic. And it almost feels like you're finding $20 in your pocket. You're like, oh my God, where did this come from? I know, it, exactly. It's like, that's when like, when you make those epiphanies, those character specific epiphanies, it's like when you really feel like those characters start to become real to you. I remember in uh, the vampire book I wrote, I, I wrote later this thing like um, Instagram influencers and stuff like that. And I needed a male Instagram influencer just for this one chapter. He wound up being the third most important character. And by the end of it, like, I'm like, holy shit, I could spin this guy off into his own series. And it's literally just, I brought him in and he just like, every, every time I was like plotting, I'm like, okay, he's, I need him. I need someone here so he can fill that role too. And then as I got into writing it, man, I'm like, man, this guy's cool. Like, I like this kid. Like, and it just, it kept going and it kept going. And he had a real, like a super unexpected character arc in the story that played itself out. It made perfect sense. I got from A to B and got where I needed to go. And it made the story so much better. Like, I just, wow, I got to, I got to meet this kid and build him and see where he went. It's just, again, you say it to a normal person, they don't have any idea what you're talking about, but it's fun. It's why you do what you do. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And it's one of, when, when things start clicking, right. Cause like, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people do it in, in a bunch of different ways, but for me, sometimes when I'm writing, it's almost, it almost feels like when you're starting to work out, yeah. um, when you don't want to, and you're like, you hate it. And like yep. that first, like five minutes, you're like, I could do literally be anywhere, but here. And then all of uh-huh. a sudden somewhere in the middle, you're like lost in it and you don't want it. Like, it doesn't matter what's going to happen. And for me, it takes me so long, not so long, but like a page or so to start ramping up. And then all of a sudden you're, I'm in it. And once I get in it, it's, I'm always chasing that, like to get in it moment. Yep. And that's the, that's the good stuff. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I've had to kind of get over myself. Cause sometimes it's like, you, some days you just don't have it. Right. But I mean, like when I have, like, there's some, there's some, I, I can't, I can't afford to not have it. Like I have time now. So what I've really started, this is like a little trick that I've worked on is I learned about writing sprints is like you shut off. This is really cool. It's helped me a bunch. Like you should, cause the internet is so distracting. Right. And uh, you just shut it off and you set a timer and you just write for however long that timer goes. And you're just nothing else. You're completely, you just write. And I've trained myself now where I can get a thousand words done in 40 minutes. So I try to write in 40 minute blocks. So really I got a three out, like with when you're creative, you don't, you don't have a whole lot. Even you to just, no one can be like super creative for eight hours a day. It just, nobody can do that. So I train myself about four, three to four hours a day. Again, with the kid, it's even harder, but at night, like I'll set the first, the first sprint, all right, 40, 40 minutes, go hide Twitter, hide Facebook, hide all that stuff. And just go put music on. I just write buzzer goes off or if i beat the time i beat my hit my goal beforehand yeah usually it's just a chapter okay just get a chapter done 40 minutes go because i i was just trying to aim for four for a thousand words for chapter boom go and i'll just then at 20 minutes i'll take a break for 20 minutes for the rest of that hour you know relax go screw around like go go to the bathroom go get something to drink you know i have 20 minutes to myself okay now time to go boom and like when i started doing that i found that my i became a lot more consistent in my work counts. I became, and again, that a lot of that came from when Andy was in preschool, when we, when we had normal school and stuff like that, he had three hours a day in preschool and I would go to the library across the street from his preschool and I would have X amount of time to get this done. All right, 
go. And if I just tried to write the whole time, I would get distracted and this and this and this. So I figured if I broke it up into chunks, it was going to get better. And man, my productivity went through the roof at that point by just forcing myself to be, to be uh, creative, to be focused, I guess, in those little chunks of time. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, uh, I might try some, some writing sprints. I would what... advise it. Yeah. I, I, I uh, you know, with a little one at home with, with everything it's tough, I get going it. on. I, before when she was napping, you know, sporadically, um, I would just like sit down. It's like, all right, I got between 30 minutes and maybe an hour. Let's see what I could, I could do. Mm-hmm. But like that 25 minutes was that ramping up part. And so mm-hmm. I'd finally get into the the flow of things. I'm like, oh, baby's up. Like, I'm like, ah. It's it's so hard. Again, that's why I've tried to like, especially now when I've had X amount of time. All right, block it out. Do this. Go. And then when it's done, it's done. You move on. Especially if I have to get dinner or if I have to take him to do whatever. Like it's it's hard now for sure. Now that they're not in school, like he's supposed to start kindergarten in the fall, and I'm praying we're back to normal by then because I'll get so much done. Yeah. But like, I, yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, um, no, no. Totally cool um, conversation. Do you uh do you have like a specific word count for your prose or like I gotta get fifty thousand words and then I'm done? Or is it like, all right, I wanna get a thousand words or, or three thousand words a day and then I just need to get to the end and however many however long that is, it's what it is. The story is the story. Like um my books it's been crazy. Like so these uh my first book, Harvest Moon, is about sixty five thousand words. And the next two were also about 65,000 words, uh, 65, 70, something like that. The next one in the series was only 50. And I was like, what happened? It, it was a book about the Wendigo. And it turned out two dudes walking around in the forest by themselves. Not a lot to talk about. So I just got through that story a lot faster. This one I just finished was 100,000 words. Like, I didn't plan on it. That just, I beat out the story. And this is just how it went. This one I'm writing now. Um, I'm about 20,000 words into it. And I'm, I'm thinking it's probably about 85,000, 90, maybe 90 words. Like, um, I don't know why it's just, that's how the stories are going. And I'm like, you know, if that's the story for and with a book, it's easy. Cause I'm like, well, that's the story. Mm-hmm. Like it, it kind of is what it is. And like, and it's in my, the, the hundred thousand word monster was a surprise. It's at my editor right now. And if he says you need to trim, I'm willing to trim. But when I went through and I did my, my second, third drafts on my own, I didn't, I found that I added more stuff to it than I took away. So, I mean, like it feels tight to me right now. Um, maybe I'll feel different when it gets, cause I, I like to get some distance from what I write sometimes. You know, I think that uh, when you can look at something with fresh eyes, it helps. Um, it's been, it's been kind of weird. Like I said, like, I think maybe at first I was a little too in the comics world where I was like, you know, too concise and too tight with everything, too economical with my words. And I think that now I'm a little bit more comfortable and I can, I can open up because readers do want a little bit more, you know, they do want some value. You know, if I'm charging five bucks for a book, like, you know, it's, it's better if I can get, it's better if I'm closer to 80 than to 50 is what I find a thousand words. But you know, if I got a 50,000 word story, it's a 50,000 word story. I'm just gonna have to sell it for cheaper. You know, it's like, that's the way I have to look at it. You know, it's, it, it is what it is. I think it's a lot of it too, is like, when you, you, Mark Dawson says you have to write a million words before you get find your voice. I'm probably right around there right now. I'm probably right around a million words like written. So I think are I'm you, getting better. Are you, uh, speaking of your voice, have you found that there's like themes or ideas yeah. or certain things that you gravitate towards that you didn't necessarily think you would? Mm-hmm. Uh, f- uh, 
my mom died when I was 21, when I was in college, and it messed me up worse than I ever realized. Parent parental loss is a theme that shows up in my work repeat, not on purpose, it just does. Repeatedly, um, I like to write about family stuff a lot, like familiar relationships, really, you know, and that could be, you know, in um, father-son, um, mentor-student, like, or, you know, those relationships are looking for those relationships. Like I tend, I tend to do that. I tend to write a lot of... Um, religious allegory type of things like not like this is this this is that but it's like questioning of things like trying to make sense of the of the world um i like to write like uh, horror is the the majority of what i've written or, or like action horror is like to say like a lot of my stuff has um a little bit darker tone to it this is kind of what i'm into so i mean like but at the end of the day a lot of it is like family stuff a lot of it is fear of death a lot of it is um fear of loss of a parent or loss of a parent that's kind of the, the, the stuff that's dominated my writing. It's stuff's a little dark to be honest with you. Like even, even in the stuff, uh, the movie I made about wrestling when I was in my twenties, you know, that's about it. That was really about a kid dealing with his dad's death. Yeah. I, uh, man, all of that stuff, like for me, I always deal with domestic stuff, like mm-hmm. with, uh, families and loss and all of that stuff. And I completely understand what, what you're, what you're coming from. Like my, uh, my first comic, Man of Sin, it came because I lost um, my stepfather and my grandfather six months from each other from cancer, right? And, like, that watching what my family was going through was really the catalyst of that. And so um, I I have found that everything that I write is definitely domestic-driven in some capacity, right? Like, some people are really good at political stuff or, mm-hmm. or, or like, romance and I just know that what I gravitate towards as a writer, right, not as someone who consumes stuff, mm-hmm. but as what I write happens to be that. And I just, I always find it interesting because I don't think, for me, it wasn't my intention. And I don't no, think it's, it's, it, it's just kind of what kind of comes from, comes out of us. Yeah, it's writers. all it's all subliminal. Like it's all like subtext. Like you're all, and people, like I, I joke, my brother's trying to be a writer right now and he he focuses on, subtext more I, I joke like you you're so focused on your subtext you don't worry about your actual text like subtext is stuff that should come through you not that you should be conscious about right like sub like you have to emphasize the sub part like for me i write fantastical stuff like i write uh gritty stuff like it's action driven but it's character driven it's all based on relationships and character stuff because that's what it like i'm a high concept guy at heart but I'm always look. But I really dig metaphor. Like I'm everything. Everything I do is is metaphorical, and I don't do it on purpose. It just like I'll set out to write. I'm gonna write this badass book about vampires, and it's really about you know, um, you know, uh, people looking to belong to something. You know, and it's like I look back and I'm like, well, I didn't plan on that, but it work. I mean, but it works. Like I'm seeing that in this one too. It's really about trying to find this next one. I'm writing about is is really trying to find. Uh, you're 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 like make atoning with your past and and clearing the air with people that you were um that you had relation like like uh, uh, mentor relationships mentor mentee relationships with and that they didn't go so well and like but really the book is about like it's like x-men meets the purge like that's that's what i'm writing but this other stuff like gets it seeps through there but it makes it stronger you know And, and i think that's what you know readers gravitate towards 
right? Like if we if we could come full circle with like what we're talking about with Stephen King when we first started talking mm-hmm. about it, I think that's what people gravitate towards, right? It's it's like his ability to have those really um, interesting moments between characters that's going on within the plot while this other larger stuff is going on around it. And I, I think that's, as a writer, it's a lot of fun to write. And sometimes you're not really sure as you're writing that that's your intention. At least the, the, dark, the, the dark, and I, I was thinking the dark tower and it, and um, a lot of his stuff actually revolves around people from broken families, trying to find family through crises, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was thinking about the dark, like they're looking for the dark tower, but really, but really, it's 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 metaphor for them trying to find themselves. And like, back like X Men. Like, I'm a Claremont X Men guy. I love Claremont X Men. Like, you didn't the mutant powers and stuff was cool, but what made it work was was Chris Claremont's trying to process racism and trying to process you know how we treat people in this country. That's what X Men's about, you know. And it's you, you come for the you come for Wolverine and his badass looking claws, and you stay because you get these just multi layered characters, and it's a little soapy at times, but it's still it still holds true and it still works and it's still the foundation for what that that series was built on. Spider Man is is uh, you know same thing lost his lost his parent and trying to live up to the shadow of something he he can never do and nothing he can do is ever good enough to make up for that one mistake. And how many, how relatable is that? And that's, that's what writing is. Like you, 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 I, I see you, you, you bring them in with that sweet cookie and you, you, it turns out you're, you're giving them vegetables. <laughs> for yeah. sure. Yeah. I, uh, how do your, how do your wrestlers uh, react or respond or, or, or treat you um, knowing that you're a creative? Cause I, I, it's fun kind of messing around with some of my guys about the stuff that I do. They don't ask me too much about what I'm writing. They always like, it's always been, they always want to talk about comic books with me. Like they always want to talk superheroes. And I've been a bunch of different schools and they all want to, it's always who wins in a fight, Batman or Hulk. And I say, who's ever writing the book. And they don't like hearing that, but like they'll, they'll have fun with me. We'll talk about the movies or like superheroes and they'll enjoy that. Like they, none of them have ever read any of my stuff. Some of them, when they get older, like some of the kids I had back in the day will buy my stuff and now that they're a bit older, but I don't think that teenagers are too into one reading full books, which is kind of a shame, but like, that's just how they're wired. I think right now um, they have fun. Like they, they know, I'm, they know, I'm, they know their coach is a nerd. I, I think it's, you know, the superhero thing. It's really interesting. It's uh, broken into the mainstream with the Marvel Big time. Uh, cinematic universe. So mm-hmm. it's, it's now cool to like uh, Iron Man and the Hulk and all that stuff, which is, you know, a lot different than what it used to, you know, uh, what it used to be. used to keep that stuff quiet. And now it's like every, like the, that stuff rules. I was talking about the superhero speak podcast that I co-host. Like I'd say all the time, I said, the geeks won. Like we won the culture war. Like everyone watches Marvel movies. Everybody's into some superhero type thing. Like my little buddy's got my little guy's got his whole room is decorated in superhero things and you know it's just it's just part of it's part of Americana you know it's what we are as a, as a society thank God because the rest of the world caught up with us yeah yeah you know? that's uh yeah that's it's really awesome it's really interesting too I you know for me growing up I was always into like you know Pokemon cards and anime and all of these things and it wasn't like I I hit it from my 
you know, the athlete side, the, that athlete circle. I just didn't bring it up because I knew when I, was, when I was talking to them, they didn't talk about it. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to talk to you about this really awesome, you know, Vampire mm-hmm. Hunter D or Dragon Ball Z or, you know, whatever it was. So it was really, it was really interesting. It was like, that's what I did you know, on my own. And then I went out and, and trained and hung out with the friends and all that stuff. I was, exact, I was the exact same. I'm a little bit older than you, so I didn't um, – probably a lot older than you, actually. So I didn't have the Pokemon and the, and the anime as much. But for me, it was it was comics, specifically the superhero comics, and pro wrestling. And, again, like, when it, it got cool for a hiccup, then I felt, all right. But then for the most part, like, I just didn't talk about it. Like, that's not what anybody else wanted to talk about. So I wasn't out there trying to be like, hey, man, are you guys reading the Clone Saga? It's incredible. They're trying to say Peter Parker isn't the real Peter Parker. It just – you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't discussed, you know, then you find out later that some friends actually were into those kind of things. And you're like, Oh, Oh, I wasted all that, all that wasted opportunity. We could have had sharing these things. Like there's less of a stigma on like those type of things now than I think there used to be, which is good. Kids need to be comfortable and be, yeah, and be comfortable being, be comfortable having fun. I, I can, those things are fun. I completely agree. One thing I always, always wanted, and I just never, had a friend group is like, I always wanted to play D and D and like, I never, I never had a friend group that did that when I was younger. And I've uh, a couple of my coworkers right before the pandemic hit, they were starting one and then it happened. And it's like, uh, well, we'll get, we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, so that's one of, one of the things I want to do on my bucket list. I didn't get to do as a kid. Now that I'm an adult, definitely going to yeah. join one of those. I have never played D and D before. I, when I was doing my when I was doing the, uh, the Kickstarter. I was I was on all these podcasts trying to get word out, and one of them I jumped on was this, this show called Villains United, or, or Villains Demand, excuse me. And they like they pit superhero characters against each other, and they do it like D and D style. I'm like, oh, it's great. And I'm like, I've never played D and D before. I don't know how to do this. He's like, oh, you'll figure it out real quick. And I was like nervous. Sometimes I've ever been nervous going to podcasts. I talk about writing or or whatever all day, but like you asked me like D and D stuff, and I'm like. Oh man, you, that's my, that's my nerd blind spot. Like I have <laughs> nothing, but I did I had a good time. Like it was, it was fun. Like the point stuff, I just, it was so foreign to me, but I just, I rolled with the punches and had a good time. I think I got my ass kicked. I'm not sure. Like it was, <laughs> it was different. It was fun. That's, that's awesome. Uh, a couple of things, man, before we, we wrap sure. up here, I don't, I don't have a lot of wrestling coaches on here. You're the first one specifically. I don't have any uh, Illinois wrestling coaches rocking my Fargo shirt right now. I know, man. That's awesome. So uh, are we having a season here, man? I don't know. Uh, well, according to the, the message we just got this week was we're supposed to be able to practice next week. Like oh, we're, really? we are in, um, cause I'm out West. I mean, I live in Davis junction. I coach in DeKalb. We're in the Northwest we're in the uh, Northwest region of the, the COVID region. So we are officially allowed to practice again, but nobody knows what that means. And I'm, I'm, I hate to get this like political. I tend to, I tend to swing very much to the left. So I'm not super comfortable right now, but uh, talking to my doctor said, well, you're a one B worker, one B workers in Illinois. Cause we work with kids. We were teachers can start applying for vaccines next week. And I'm like, rock and roll. I now I feel better about life. Like, so Monday morning, I'm going to be on the horn of my doctor trying to schedule myself a vaccination. What happens after that? I don't know. My gut right now says, I think we're going to wrestle. Cause it seems like everyone's pushing it that way. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, I thought there, I thought there's no way, but the, everything seems to have changed about face. And we're talking about practicing again and, 
Like it seemed to come out of nowhere, but I think that uh, I think we will have a season. Now what that means, I don't know. Like I know the, I know um, speaking of Chris McGrath, I got a thing saying the IWCOA is willing to host a state series, which I think is great. I think the kids need something to train for. Um, It's been the weirdest year of my life, right? Like I haven't had a winter, I haven't had a winter off. I haven't had a winter that hasn't revolved around wrestling since 1993. Yeah. And I started, I started late. I rest, I didn't start wrestling until high school. So for me, this is like, what do I do? It's been so like getting back into it's going to feel weird. Yeah. I, uh, I did the same thing. I started when I was a freshman out of high school. So for 2000 for me, yeah. um, I, I, I was like hanging, like, I just remember coming home this winter and I was like, I don't have anything to do. Like, I guess we could like, it's, it's weird. Like my wife's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, usually I'm gone all day. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely, odd. yeah. Here's a, here's a question. Um, what, what do you do to keep your technique sharp f- for teaching? Because that's something that um, I am finding, like when I first came out of college uh, in like the late 2000s, early 2010s, I felt like my technique was really, really sharp mm-hmm. and cutting edge. And then the last like three years, I'm like already seeing that it's starting to get stale. This is the this is the grand thing about uh, being a wrestling coach is when you get out of school, you think you know everything. Like you think your technique is pristine. You think, but I got all this. And then about five years in, you realize you don't know shit. You know, like you're like, I don't know a goddamn thing. And like, I the, the what I do is I make sure like is is my I'll tell you right now, I can te- I teach better than I ever have, but I don't. I, I, as far as me drilling, I mean, like I'm, I'm going to turn 40 next month. I'm not as pristine as I used to be. I don't wrestle like I used to. If I wrestle the kids now, I'm a throne. <laughs> like I've completely turned into part of it too, is I'm a big Greco guy. So I mean, now, like now if, if I lock up with the kid, I'm a launch, like I just launch him out through a headlock. Like, you know, it just, I ain't shooting. <laughs> you know, like, like I'm old. I wasn't, I was a hand fighter to begin with. Now it's just, I'll hit a, like when I was wrestling Tony Cassiope last time he came in the room out in DeKalb and like, I went from pounding on that kid when he was a freshman and a sophomore to like, being, Oh my God, this kid's good as a junior to surviving when he was a senior. And now he comes out and I'm like, fuck now. It's all just hopefully I can hit him with a foot sweep and survive, you know? And then like, I joke with myself, I'm like, I'm going to foot sweep you and then I'm going to run away for the next 10 minutes. That's my plan. Like that's uh, so I think that it's important to, as a coach circle, <laughs> what's important as a coach is to realize your technique doesn't have to be as pristine as it was when you were, when you were young, because what you give, what you have now is you have that knowledge base. And I can show, like, I've never, I've never had a sweep single in my life. I can't do it. I can teach it. I can slow break. I can break it down and I can show it and I can, I can show you where your head's supposed to go, but I can't do it. I never did it. I was a snatch single leg guy. Right. So for me, it's more important to understand the why of technique, like not even the how, but the why, why does this work? Right. Why do we do this? And that's the thing about technique too, is everything is constantly moving and evolving and changing. Like if you're going to rest on your laurels, what you did in 2010, 2012, like you're, you're done. Right. So for me, the best thing I ever did was I got on the, the Fargo staff uh, with Greco specifically. And I said, like, I want to learn from Brian Medlin. 
I want to be a great Greco coach because I I'm enjoying this, but I really don't know. Like, even though I was a Greco state champ in high school, like I don't really know what they know. So yeah, that, that sure. put that put me in a spot where now, like I'm learning from the best in the one of the best in the in the country. You know, in my opinion, one of the best in the world. He'll punch me if I ever hears me say that, but it's the truth. Like, and that elevated my game, right? Like I'm not, I don't think I'm um anything special, but like. I can teach, I can break down, I can explain things. And that's just because you're around it. Like my, our head, luckily for me is I'm in a really good spot where uh, my head coach, you know, Sam Hyatt is a a genius. Like, and he'll just study and study and study what's, what's working now. Like I don't have, I've never been, I've never had that attention to detail with wrestling. I've always been more of a feel guy. So what I will do is I'll sit and I'll, I don't have to run the room anymore. So, I mean, like, I watch him and I'm like, okay, or we'll figure it out together. But Hey, this is what I want to work on today. And he'll do stuff and I can feel like I've always been really good with like feeling stuff out. Like that's why I, that's why I picked up judo so quickly is like, I could feel it, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in that regard. So I don't worry about if it, if I can drill as good as I used to, because I hate drilling. (laughs) So, so I don't. Well, there's really, you know, you're tired now. There's no, there's no point, you know, there's really oh, not a whole get, lot of, I'm going to get tired now for the first time. Cause I haven't touched a mat since March, but I mean, like, like I can, like, I, I, I remember wrestling my coach in, in college, Dave Grant, when I was in Northern and I was 22 peak of my life. And then he was my age. Now he was 40 and we wrestled and he got me so tired. I couldn't, I couldn't sit up straight. And he just beat my ass. And I had a, I remember I whipped my mouth guard at the wall after this go. And I said, what the, and I swore at him. I'm like, this is, shit like i'm in better shape than you you don't do anything like how am i tired i'll never forget he grabbed me by my shirt threw me up against the wall and he said you think i'm gonna let some punk ass 22 year old think out know how tired i am and the light bulb went off in my head i'm like oh you're super tired you just didn't show you just pretended not to be and that was like that was it for me i never showed i never got tired in the match again because i tricked myself into thinking like i'm not going to show you how tired i am and that year, like, man, I, I'd never lost a match in overtime. Like, if I had a lead or close in the third, I knew I was going to win because I knew I wasn't going to show. Like, it was like that one little, like, chess move thing just blew my mind. And to this day, now I do it so the kids don't know how tired I am. <laughs> yeah, now, that's, I just, uh, now I just pull on their head in front headlock and pull because I can do that all day. Yeah, you got, the, you got the old man tricks. I do. I got the old <laughs> man tricks. Now I just snap, snap, snap. They sit up and I'll throw a headlock and that yeah. pisses them off and it's great. Or they'll stand up straight and I'll hit an inside trip. I do all old guy stuff now. Yeah, but I mean, awesome. like, but it's that same lesson applies. And I think that we, again, we, we get so obsessed with the grind. You get in there and you grind on that single leg. And, you know, it's like, okay, it's, it's more, you watch the Europeans, they're so much smarter than us. Like apply, like use this as opposed to using this. Like we need to be, we need to be more like that. And it's better, man, the technique in our state and the coaching in our state is so off the chart. And like to been on, you know, even just in the peripheral of, of seeing this evolve has been just amazing. Like the kids we coach today are so much better than they were. Like I'm from the nineties. Like it's the technique is so much better than it was back then. And then when I started coaching in the, in the two thousands and the teens, like, I don't teach the same stuff I did 10 years ago. You know, I can't, I still throw, there's still tricks. So like I, an inside trip is going to work, but man, I'm, I spend way more time focusing on the setup than I'd spend focusing on the technique to it. Like the technique of getting in on the, getting your steps in and dropping your knee. Like it's really not about, okay, well, let's, you know, get into here, get into there. 
boom. You know, it's all about moving the guy into the right position, which is like when you were in high school back in the day, you didn't have to worry about the setup. You just go and you're going to finish it. If you're strong, if you're in good shape and you can grind, you will finish that. And then in college, you learn how to set it up. That's out the window, man. Like now we got kids in the IKWF that are worrying about their, their head position and, and, you know, uh, passing an elbow by and those kind of things to set up an attack. Like everything is on such a higher level. Like wrestling is, is so much better than it used to be. I hate listening to old people say oh, I was better back in the day. That's bullshit. No, I, I mean, just from, you know, my era, like, look, just, you know, my reference, mm-hmm. understanding like my era in high school, there wasn't a whole lot of Illinois guys going to division one schools no and now i feel like there's always just a huge crop of them going Almost and, too many and succeeding a lot of them are you oh, know yeah. finding success which wasn't the case um and i don't you know and it's i think going back to what you said like i think our you know our kids programs are, are getting better i think the coaching is getting better i think illinois is a, in general is a much tougher state it is but i think that um i think I think what we lack is like we, cause we're not, we don't see nearly as it's getting better and we'll ride these crests and waves. We haven't caught up to Pennsylvania folk style wise. We haven't caught up. Like I think New Jersey is better than us in a lot of years. You know, like we don't have that success in the NCA level and a lot of it isn't because our technique isn't good enough. I think that our youth, I think our youth coaches sometimes uh, value the amount and it's getting better than it was like a few years ago. But I think for the most part, we value wrestling matches over practice. Like I think we, I think especially at the youth level, people get too many matches in. I, you, we no, do have a number, you know. There's a, there's a number you, everyone's got that count, and when you hit that number of matches, you're done. I've seen far too many kids surrender before they've hit their physical peak because they just can't go anymore, you know. And that's we we need to be a little bit more like the Europeans and focus more on practice than competition. Like, I think there's some, I think the best coaches in our state have, have figured it out, but I don't think, I don't think enough have quite yet. Yeah. You know? And, and speaking, I guess, specifically to those, you know, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, kind of the states that traditionally are the powerhouse that do better than us uh, at the division one level. I think one thing that we're lacking, uh, you know, as a whole, and I think it comes from the kids level is we don't really we, Matt. Yeah, the mat wrestling. We don't put any emphasis on it. And it's because at the kids' level, if you are awesome on your feet, right? Yeah, if you're awesome. That's why we're so good at freestyle. There's no mat wrestling. We're better than everyone on our feet. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we get to the mat, it's like, all right, well, usually so usually this guy lets me up. Why Why is he? Why does he take me down and ride me for a period and it's 2-0? I'm used to the match being 8-4. The truth is, is like, and this is like, we play, we worry so, and this is like, it's easier to get kids excited about stuff when they see success, right? So it's easier to teach a kid to take somebody down, especially if they're athletic, younger, like, and they feels good, you know, scoring a takedown and a kid feels good. You feel dominant. Well, I'll do it again. You know, it's harder and it takes more time and patience to teach a kid how to ride and to turn. Now, quite frankly, I, being an Illinois guy and being a freestyle Greco guy, I think mat wrestling is abhorrent and boring, but that is the game that we play. 
Like when you're, when you're in the folk style world, you have to know how to ride. That is a gigantic focus for us in DeKalb is we focus on get the wrist, get the wrist, get the wrist, get the wrist, take them down, get the wrist, take them down, get the wrist. You know, we have to have a basis. And for us, it's, it's getting that wrist and tilting. And it's not mind boggling. It's not like we're blowing away technique. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not, you know, if you wrestle us, we're going to try to tilt your arm bar you know, on top because we, you have to, we're trying to get kids accepting of the idea that if you want to wrestle at the next level, which one is hard to do to begin with, like wrestling in college is a whole different mental and physical mindset. And the vast majority of kids aren't ready for it. Everyone wants to be division one. I, I think that's an Illinois problem. Everybody wants to be a division one kid and they get to division one and they're like, wow, this is hard. And then they're very cool being like on a division one team, but riding the bench, you know? I wish we saw more kids going division two, II, division three. That's a personal opinion in our state, but like it's harder to teach mat wrestling. It takes more patience to teach it. And like, we don't put enough focus. This is the difference between like the Russian system and ours. We put too much focus on the results and not enough focus on development. And that's not every coach. There's some, there's some, I don't want to name names. There's some damn good coaches that are focusing on development right now, but not everybody. Yeah. That's it's, yeah. It's, you know, and it's really hard too if you're at the kid level and you're teaching, you know, your kid how to ride, and yep. then he gets taken down and teched by a kid who doesn't know anything. It's like, all right, Absolutely. well, I guess I gotta, I guess I gotta teach him how to. And it's like, and then it kind of becomes this like systemic problem. In Absolutely. Absolutely, and then we, and it's better. Believe me, dude, it's so much better now than it was ten years ago. Right. To take him down and let him go. It's better. This is the best it's been probably since like the seventies, like with with guys riding. Like this is really in the eighties when that, that take him down, let him down mentality started being brought into our state. And it's been like, that's what I wrestled in the nineties. And that's what kids did. Take him down, let him go, take him down, let him go, take him down, let him go. You know, and we just, we're so alone in the world. We're so alone in the States as far as that goes. And again, for, for, in my opinion, like what's the most important, what's the, if you're wrestling, you know, the ultimate goal is not a state title. The ultimate goal is to be a world champion. Right. So that match on your feet is what being the best on your feet is what should take up the focus. But because we have this system in America based on folk style, you have to do this to survive unless you're going to be like, all right, you're just going to wrestle freestyle, which I don't know anybody that's for Greco. I don't know anyone in high school that's tried to do that. So you have to play the American game. And again, I don't love it, but like, you know, I'm going to, when my kid starts wrestling, whenever that is, I have no idea, you know, we're going to work on take them down and get a rest. Start yeah. from there. Take them down, get a wrist. Every time you skate down, take them down, capture the wrist. You know, because we we have to. Like you have to, you have to, you have to. If you're gonna wrestle in college, you have to know how to ride, you have to know how to get away. Which by the way, we suck at riding, we're worse at getting away. I, I think, yeah. If we're if we're talking college specifically, like Illinois College kids, specifically, Illinois kids. Yeah. Uh we're we're adequate, I think, on top. We, we could figure that out. I getting think. better, but it's the yeah. the problem the problem is is good kids are never ridden. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, the, the, the bottom, our bottom is terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Like uh, the best kid I ever coached, he could get away from any, if the, I run in the whistle, he'd get away from anybody. But if you stop this first move, boy, was it, it was going to, we know, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it didn't, <laughs> you know, like in getting, because like, because you have to embrace the mentality of, okay, I have to get away. I have to focus on the little things. You know, we all want to look, we all want to go big macro. It's very hard to focus on the micro, especially when you're dealing with kids who, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to keep their attention for more than a couple minutes at a time. 
You know, sure. and the, the details is tough, man. And getting away is all about details. Yeah. And, and a lot of it too is, um, is a mindset. It totally right? is. It totally, but you could have the greatest mindset in the world. And like, if you got a good leg rider, I could be super positive about it, but those <laughs> things are coming in. Like I, yeah. I, oh man, I remember forgetting this kid. We were wrestling this dude. And again, no names. He, he was wrestling this kid who was super great with legs. And I'm like, all right, man, make sure you know you got to seal off coming up because those things can be like, nope, I'm gonna stand up right off the whistle. He's in the way. This kid was convinced he was gonna get away right off the whistle. He stood up, shot up right off that whistle, got mad, returned, the legs came right in. <laughs> he had no plan after that. He didn't want to listen. Like he was convinced he was gonna get away immediately. And he's like, no, I have to get away this way. Cause then if I, if he can get him in, then I'm screwed. So I can't let him come in. Like, oh, okay. So you've just lost the match. Yeah. I, then, I, I see that a lot specifically with leg riders, which I think oh, is yeah. interesting, right? Kids are like, oh, well, he knows how to ride legs. Like I'm doomed. Oh yeah. It's like, one yeah. Cause again, it's a, cause it's the, it's the hardest position to get away from. Yeah. Legs are, legs suck. And I've, this is the one position that we were, Sam and I were talking about. This. You study and study. I've, I have seen a hot, like you talk about how to do a stand up. There's variations on it, but I mean, like it all pretty much relies on the same principle, right? Like it's all, there's little details here and there, but a stand up, you know, all kind of comes from the same spot. Getting out of legs, if you watch clinicians, they're all over the place with different techniques and how to, like, I still can't tell you the best way to get out of legs. It's, uh, What's what's really interesting too is you could teach a, a version of getting out of the legs, but unless you got a guy on top of you who really knows how to do it, mm-hmm. that whoever you're teaching, all your guys could be all right. We, we've gone over this is how we're doing it. This is our belief. But until you got that one good leg rider on you, it, as soon as he gets on your kids, they're, your kids go look at you like this is not what Jimmy felt like. Exactly, like, this is so different. And we have that problem. Like I'll specifically, like, again, we don't have a lot of leg riders come from our team because we teach a lot of wrist. We teach a lot of bar, you know, if you're spending your time, cause like if you spend your time co- coaching wrist, coaching bar, you know, you're not going to spend as much time going legs. Again, I was a leg guy in college, which is funny for the guy, short stubby legs. I was actually decent to high thigh leg ride, but like, it's tough. It's tough to get kids to drill it right. When the guy on top isn't giving you the right look, like how, how are they ever going to learn how to get away? Right. Unless they know how to leg ride. So, I mean, like, it, and again, I'm sitting here telling you, I, I just hear preach about what we need to do as a state to get better on top and bottom. If we're wrestling a dude from like a Marmion who's really good with his legs, I don't, I, why? I mean, like, in a crunch, in, in like, if it's like a, a December match, sure, I'll put him down just so they can feel it. But if it's like late January, early February, you need a W? Yeah, go I, neutral. Got to. I mean, like, again, that feeds the negative system, but. You know, at that point, the kids got to win matches. You know what I'm saying? Like, and there's this constant because of the nature of our season, because it's that constant week, like every week, wrestle, 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 wrestle. Unlike that European model where you know you train for a tournament, then you're off, then you train for a tournament, then you're off, then you train for a tournament, you're off. Right? Like for us, it's just constant, 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 constant. So I mean, like you have to get those results. It's a res- the American-based wrestling system that we developed is results-based. Right. And if the kids don't get results, then they get down on themselves. They get down on themselves. Then you're, then they're losing. And if they're losing, they're not having fun. Right. So I mean, like there's this, there's this crazy balance you have to keep of like success to fun to like what works. And it's, it's hard, man. It's hard keeping that stuff in balance because you have to focus on development, but I can't be focused on development in the sectional final. Right. Yeah. You know, like I got to win, like we got to win. And this kid gets on top. We're boom, boom, neutral, take him down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's because that's the only way he's going to win that match. Like it's so, 
It's so crazy. And like, here's what I, I found the kids that start later in wrestling. If they can learn how to ride legs, they'll have success. Like the schools I was at before DeKalb, I've had kids that started wrestling in high school and learned to ride legs and were we had state place winners. I've had a couple of them that didn't have much else, but man, nobody can get out of a leg ride. It's uh, it's interesting you say that. Um, I heard Perler say that if you learn how to leg ride, you'll be two years ahead of where you should be. Yeah, I, I, I have absolutely. I had a kid when I was at when I was my at South Elgin. He was, uh, I think, he started wrestling in the eighth grade. He's pretty athletic, but not super athletic. You know, um, learned how to leg ride just because, like, he just fell into it, and he had strong legs, and he could just long legs, wide hips, and he was good at it. He wound up placing third as a senior. And it was all, we were able to build off of him because he could leg ride and cradle. And that kept him in matches when he was younger. He had success. Success breeds, you know, enjoyment. Then you want to get better to elevate your game. Like, like he was pretty good on his feet by the end. But like, it, like put it this way, I'm in the state tournament, the third place match. It's the second period. You know what I did? Yeah. Like, cause I knew he would, and he pinned the kid. Like, it was just like, I, I, that's where he's, that's where he's at his best. Like it, he's a hundred percent right. If you can, if you can get good at legs, you're never really out of a match. His power half sucks. Yeah. It's interesting you, know? you say that. I, I, I personally started wrestling as a freshman in high school and I got, and I was a leg rider and it wasn't like, um, it just was something that kind of, happened it wasn't like my team with leg riders just kind of something that i fell into Mm -hmm. uh and it was i was exponentially better than if i would have never learned that exactly which is which is like all of these things it's interesting kind of how i could relate to it but what's what's it really interesting is that i i really don't teach it I'm the same way. And I said, I was a leg rider. Cause again, I same deal. I in high school, my college, my high school, I went to a, uh, not a good high school. My high school was not very good. I won matches because I was too dumb to realize I wasn't very good. <laughs> like I was very, I was, I don't want to say very, I'm pretty athletic. I'm strong. And like, I, I learned stuff quickly. So and I said, I have a good feel. So I, I had some success, but I always faltered when the big stuff, cause no, I didn't, I never had that. Like I never saw anybody else win on the big stage and my coach didn't really know how to coach on a big stage. So when put like the big moment came, I, I fumbled, I walked down in college and I learned, I really learned how to wrestle when I was a, a division one college, which is not the way I'd recommend anybody doing it. But I started learning how to leg ride in college. Like in high school, I would just, they would fall in and I would just squeeze. Right until we got a stalemate and I got out of that trouble. And then like when I learned how to leg ride, I, it got me, it got me a point. Like I could hold anybody enough that I could keep them in for one minute, you know, and get my riding time point. It made such a big difference. And again, you you can't, I don't think you can teach a a leg riding system, not an arsenal anyway, to a whole team because some kids will never figure it out. Like, so like you either a leg rider or you're not a leg rider. And like, as a coach, I would much rather teach a team a cross wrist system. Hundred percent. But if I find a but if I find a kid who stumbles into legs, I'll be like, "Hey, man, let's work on this." You know, yeah. let's let's spend some time. Let's let's and like and that's how I did with this other, this kid I was talking about from South Elgin. Like I just we did extra practices where I would just work on legs with him because he he had that ability to leg ride, and I knew he was going to do it. But I also knew that if I told the dude he was drilling with how to do it, that kid was going to get pinned every time he tried it. Right. So hundred percent. And that's how that's, that's the legs is this weird. Like it's this, it's this weird, like pendulum, like you, you either going to, you're either good at it or you're terrible at it. And most people are not good at it. It, It's like, it's very much a feel. Totally a feel thing. 
It's yeah. totally a field thing. It's like you, it's like it, you can tell a kid who can leg ride right away just by how they naturally move. Like what happens? Like, does that boot keep coming in accidentally? And that's what it is. Like they just instinctively put them in. That, like, that's how, that's how it was for me. Me too. Like, when I was a freshman, I was at a tournament. Just, I was that kid. I, I know I'm going to tell you the story. So I was the kid. And as a coach, you, there's always one on every team who, when they make it to the third period, it's like the NCAA finals. Cause you think they're going to win, but cause he's never won a match. Uh-huh. I was, I was that kid on, on my team as a freshman, right? You everyone, every team in the nation, um, yep. has one, that one freshman kid who's never won a match and everyone's rooting for him when he gets to the third period. And for some odd reason, at some point at some tournament, um, I didn't know what I was doing. And I just, my legs just started coming in. And my coach was like power half. And I was like, I don't know what a power half is. Cause I've wrestled for literally two months. Right. Uh, and he took me off the side and showed me that. And I won my first match or one of my first matches because of that. And then that started kind of snowballing. And it was just one of those things that I just happened to be good at it. And I just understood it physiology, you know, physically. A 50% power half will give the average wrestler a fit on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Just like knowing what to do halfway, and it's just a power half. Like it just puts you in such an, it just puts the defensive wrestler in such an awkward position and such an uncomfortable position because to get out, to be good at getting out of legs, we, I'm going to throw the cliche out there. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's the only way to get out of legs because you're going to, and again, I remember in college, I, I had to wrestle a guy who I knew was good on top of legs. He got him in on me and I panicked. And then my coach was like, you knew that was coming. I'm like, I know, I, I just, I panicked. And I got pinned. I was winning. And he's and we so like, okay, back to the drawing board. We're going to work on this until you don't panic in this situation. And then I got pretty good at leg slip. And after that, which is what, what was our philosophy was in Northern was leg slip. Like, but it just, it takes, it takes a long time of technique work and like mental conditioning work to get good at getting out of legs with a good kid. And in high school, you don't have that time, realistically sure. speaking. Yeah. So that's why, like, again, like you can't, you can't take a, a room and like, a bunch of super athletes. Okay. All these kids are going to be leg riders because it just wouldn't work. And again, there's code, there's teams that teach like that have that, that have leg riders and they have success. I'm not going to say it can't be done. I'm saying that if you put your program focus into wrist riding near wrist, cross wrist, whatever, you're going to have more success as a team. Whereas like you could find the individuals that are good leg riders and let them do their thing. Cause there's some things that a program has to focus on. There's some things the individual has to focus on. Like we had Fabian Lopez on our team for four years and like we weren't working super ducks ever. But I mean, that kid would hit it out, like hit it from nowhere. Cause he just, he was good. It's like, all right, make sure you spend a couple minutes a day working on that. Go to town. You know, like you can't, there's some people you can't, you can't coach into doing the things they do, you know? And other, other things like, man, we'll work on that inside out single every day, every single person in the room work on that inside out single. Like, you know, that's stuff that a program needs. Right. So it's always weighing that it's always weighing those choppies of what is the individual, what's going to help the individual and what's going to help the program. And it's, it's a hard balance to find. It really is. Yeah. And, and it, uh, you're never sure you're doing it right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You, you definitely, you definitely uh, will always question yourself, especially when it doesn't go right. Right. right? When everything's going right, you're like, Oh, I, I guess we, I guess we figured it out this week. And then yeah. when, when it goes wrong, you're like, I knew it. I knew it. Oh my God. We had so many, we had such a tough schedule last year. Like we had a national schedule and we wrestled uh, Detroit Catholic and we came back and I'm like, guys, we suck. We're terrible. Everything. Oh, this is the coach. It's like, we're terrible. Everything we do is wrong. 
<laughs> like it was like you have to kind of get off the edge and like okay they were pretty good we where can we get better where were the positives you know like you have to kind of boil it back and like okay we don't suck but we're not as good as we think we are you know and it's that's what that's wrestling in a nutshell man i think that's what's actually helped me as a writer is like the highs are never too high the lows are never too low you're always kind of mediocre <laughs> yeah and uh you know I'm, I'm glad we brought it full circle uh with that uh JD, it was uh, it was really really awesome. Yeah, uh, it's a great time. Yeah, talking with you, man. Uh, where can people find you before we get out of here? Best place to to find me is on Twitter J, at JD underscore Oliva. Um, I talk mostly about like um, I get paid to write about wrestling, so a lot of my stuff is about wrestling related because that's where I try to focus things. Um, I talk a lot about my books, talk a lot about wrestling. Uh, I do have a Twitter. Uh, do have a Facebook page? Uh, JD Oliva writer that's specifically geared toward my books. That's a, that you can find me there a lot. And uh, that's probably the best places. I got an Amazon page where you can buy any of my books. They're available. Uh, Amazon, Kobo, Barnes and Noble, any place you want to buy a book, you can find my stuff. Awesome, man. Well, dude, thanks for uh, chatting with me, man. And doing a little deep dive into wrestling. I don't think uh, my listeners uh, will, will uh, have ever been so informed about wrestling. Before. That's okay. That's for us. Yeah. That was, <laughs> they, can, they can skip past it if they want. That's all right. I never get to talk about this stuff either. I have not been, I have not gotten to talk about coaching wrestling in months. So this, oh man, I, I miss it, man. Well, thank you me again, too. man. I appreciate it. Thank you, man.